Hello everyone and welcome to episode 166 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke to be joined very shortly on the line by Kyle Ross of the Top Rope Nation podcast to continue our journey looking at the WWF in the year 1991. This is part 3B of the series. Uh, We'll be covering July and August for the second time, this time focusing primarily on what was actually one of the biggest stories of the year, the departure of Ric Flair from World Championship Wrestling. On top of that, we're not only going to be talking about the actual leaving and what happened there, we're going to be talking about the backstory a lot, a lot about Ric Flair's tenure in WCW, and of course, looking at the rest of SummerSlam 91. Uh, On part 3A, we talked a lot about the match made in heaven and the match made in hell. And if you haven't listened to any of the 1991 series so far, you can listen to that, as well as every podcast we've ever done by going to the archives, whether you're going to iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, however you get your podcasts uh, the archives are all there we certainly would encourage you to go back and check them out because this has been a real fun trip looking at 1990 and 1991 uh, with Kyle Ross so without further ado we're going to jump right into it so over now to the conversation with Kyle Ross enjoy joining me now at this time once again here on SCG radio from the other side of the pond the great Kyle Ross from the Top Rope Nation podcast Kyle before we started this show uh, you sent me an email, say, sorry, a message on Facebook saying that you were amped for this one, and I feel the same way all day long. I've been excited to do this show, eager to dive into part 3B of our series on 1991 in the WWF, covering July and August. Obviously, our previous show covered all the, uh, the steroid situation that was going on. It covered the uh, the exit of the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, today, we've got a couple of things we're going to be looking at here, but man, so excited for this show. How you doing? I am doing great, and whoo, was this one hell of a time period in the World Wrestling Federation. I know we say it a lot here in the 91 series, but it truly is. You know, I think looking back, when we examined January and March, April through June, those, you know, those were parts one and two, respectively, we did split those sections as parts A and B, but that was more so just because we recorded them at different times and yeah. what, what have you. Uh Peel back the curtain, we recorded part three at two different times, because my God, I don't think we could do five plus hours sitting at one point. Uh, that's pretty tough. But part three here, where we're just covering July and August, it very much needed two parts. It's not like a continuation of what we talked about last time. It's like a whole different big story that we've yeah. got here today with Ric Flair. Um, man, I, you know, there's so hundreds of wrestling podcasts today in 2021 we needed hundreds of wrestling podcasts in 1991 to cover this man because this is just unbelievable um all this going on simultaneously the fallout of steroids the second biggest star in the promotion leaving and then the second biggest name in wrestling of the 1980s and the top star of the other promotion now about to come over all happening within the same two-month period it's truly crazy Absolutely insane, and and for those who obviously have listened to the previous uh, part, you know, 3A, a huge, huge show in length, and believe it or not, there is in fact actually even more to get to. Uh, Carl, you mentioned to me that you, obviously you found uh, some kind of extra notes that you did want to put in here for some extra context for the listeners. Yes, this goes back to part 3A. Uh, most of this, uh, actually all of it, pertains to the steroid fallout discussion we had, believe it or not. Um, there's more, <laughs> and there's more. I mean, it just, it's... So overwhelming, the, the, the source material here, and we want to, like, have our own discussions with it, but we don't want to leave anything out. And so I just uh, have a little housekeeping I'd like to take care of and have some notes I'd like to share with you, Liam, and the listeners. Uh, the first comes from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. We talked about the article in Part 3A, and I had mentioned how Meltzer said the article 
was kind of credited, for lack of a better term, with killing the house uh, at WrestleFest 91 and the poor attendance that that show did. Uh, here is the exact quote from the article uh, that uh, really painted an ominous picture of Titan Sports at the time. Quote, I was going to attend the big wrestling extravaganza to be held Sunday night at Bush Stadium and then write a cute column about it. Forget about it. There's nothing funny about a cynical organization that blatantly markets steroid-enhanced false idols to impressionable children. Oh, tremendous. So, like, again, you, you brought up the thing. It's like, well, they weren't doing good business anyway at that time. I mean, they were, obviously, in 1991. But if you're on the fence about taking the kids to the show... <laughs> You know, if you're sitting in St. Louis, you know, suburban St. Louis, ah, I think I'm going to make a trick to Bush Stadium this weekend, catch WrestleFest 91. If you read that in your main paper, you're probably not going to go, or at least think twice about it. So, mm. again, we talked about they lost 40K on that show. That's a lot of money. Uh, it was not the biggest show in the history of St. Louis. Do, do, do. <laughs> so, another news item we kind of briefly referenced in Part 3A, and I found... Uh, some quotes from it was a uh, column Vince McMahon got to write in the New York Times. Yes. Imagine that Vince McMahon getting to write in the New York Times. Uh, truly a uh, low point for that paper, uh, at least until <laughs> recent years. I was anyway. going to say, didn't the, uh, the uh, editorial columnist like, or, or the head editor quit? Of, yeah. of, the, uh, of the editorial? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, nobody likes the New York Times really on either side of the aisle over here. Um, so, but anyway, back in 1991, uh, happier times for the paper. Uh, well, except for the fact they're letting Vince McMahon write in it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Meltzer had wrote in the Observer that the public pressure was getting to McMahon for the first time. We talked about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. So he, he gets this opportunity to write in the New York Times. Uh, from Meltzer, he says, uh, it was more of an illusory history or lesson of his family trying to claim his grandfather was responsible for the original rise of pro wrestling. His father came up with the idea of putting wrestling on television. Uh, his son would follow in their footsteps. <laughs> I, I feel like right now, Liam, just, you know, production wise, he should just interject time to play the game. <laughs> Oops. I was going to say, sorry, Shade. For me, that's, that, that's, that's a little too on the nose. Vince, I can't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. Shane McMahon will not be following in the footsteps of Jess McMahon or Vince Sr. No, he won't. And uh, Meltzer did say that Vince was fairly honest about his own accomplishments. Oh. So that's one thing. Um, now, McMahon let off the New York Times piece with this, and this is a direct quote. And there is a word, a singular word, that will make you howl in here, Liam O'Rourke. You ready? Give it to me. It's no fun picking up the paper in the morning to read about your company in the most unflattering terms. The knee-jerk reaction is to blame the messenger and attack the reports, implying that the World Wrestling Federation lacks regard for its athletes and its fans, or worse still, promotes the use of anabolic steroids. Yet as much as I resent the innuendo, oh, charges, and absence of objective reporting, I recognize that these aren't the issues. The only issue is just uh, is just what is the WWF and what do we stand for? Fucking hell. <laughs> innuendo. It goes all the way back to here. Uh, it's kind of like how, have you noticed um, Cornette picked up on this in 
I forget which documentary. Maybe it was the Savage one or something like that. But, like, everybody now is saying fiefdom in regards to the territories from the WWE <laughs> side of things. Like, Bruce, fiefdom. You know, it's like, I just love how they, you know, they get these buzzwords and everybody says them. So, yeah, that that could have been the birthplace of rumor and innuendo. I don't know. Which is, of course, wrestling's equivalent of calling something fake news. Yeah. Oh, no, which is to say we have no answer for, you know, your attack. So we're just going to call it fake news or rumor and innuendo. We're going to call it bullshit and say that there's no objective reporting because there's nothing partial to us. Yes, exactly. Essentially. Um, yeah. Speaking of nothing partial to us, <laughs> yeah, Vince McMahon had a press conference. Uh, we talked about some of the tall tales he told already uh, in part 3A where, you know, he in regards to his previous steroid usage and how it actually, what he said at that press conference uh, in regards to that usage was a lie. And it, that came, it came out that he was lying uh, in his 94 steroid trial. Well, there were some other absolutely ridiculous uh, back and forths from this press conference that we should mention. I, we cannot leave this. I was thinking like, man, maybe we can wait for part four to put this in, but it just fits better here. And I wanted to go over it. Okay. So the first question McMahon got was from John Arezzi, who we talked about in part three for his uh, look on the Phil Donahue show <laughs> in early 1992. Anyway, uh, Arezzi asked if the WWF will change the way it decides which wrestlers to push, being that the tests can be beaten as Lyle Alzado and others have proven with masking drugs and HGH. That's a pretty good question, right? That's a very good question. Okay. Well, you know what, Vince McMahon, do you know how he answered that question? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> what did he say? McMahon said that the WWF doesn't push wrestlers based on size. Oh, come on! No, it gets even worse. The WWF doesn't push wrestlers. The public decides oh, based on personality and charisma. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, so that's why slow. Okay, yeah, all right then. <laughs> I feel that I should, you know... Uh, over on Top Rope Nation, where we're talking about the current product every week, I should just reread that every time they're pushing someone who's hideous, <laughs> or every time someone who the public likes and has a good personality and charisma isn't being pushed. Yeah, they've been uh, screaming for two years for this Baron Corbin push. Yes, oh, that it's the charisma and that personality. The public <laughs> decided that Baron Corbin uh, must be put to the top card. Uh, Meltzer also had a very interesting note about Arezzi and McMahon uh, going into this press conference, and really the relationship with the entire wrestling media. So Meltzer says on Monday, it was well known that the wrestling media was barred from the press conference. When a requested information on Monday, he was told there wasn't a conference and later was not given clearance to attend. George Napolitano, uh, who you hear his name on a lot of old mm-hmm. WCW tapes from Jim Ross and Roy London uh, received similar treatment. Alex Marvez didn't have any phone calls returned. Ironically, Basil DeVito did call and invite Irv Muchnick, who lives in Northern California. Thus, he knew he couldn't accept the invite because mm-hmm. this was in New York, right? At the yeah. Trump building. Was, okay. Yeah, was, yeah. So later, I don't know how Arezzi gets in, but he does. And he <laughs> asked McMahon why the wrestling media was banned. And McMahon said he wasn't aware that it was. Oh, Steve yeah. Planamenta, your boy. Quickly jumps in. I just picture this, like, him just darting to the microphone when Arezzi starts asking these questions. And Planamenta says, quote, not one of them made a call to our office. Oh, God damn. Arezzi knows this is a lie because he was one of the folks that uh, did 
you know, make a call and request to attend. And, oh, and here it is. Meltzer says he managed to attend, this is a resi, by using a reporter from a different radio station's press card after using that reporter in his station's name when making a second request to Titan. So this was a, uh, you know, not quite Brian Pillman grabbing uh, Meltzer's credentials at that toy convention <laughs> or whatever in Vegas, but, uh, um, you know, fairly close. And he brings up the numbers of London and Marvez when Planamenta insisted nobody had called. Planamenta again insisted that neither called the office. Marvez claimed he called numerous times on Monday. Meltzer says he was never contacted officially, nor did he ever contact Titan. So I guess Dave had no uh, desire to go to this uh, press conference. <laughs> Dog and pony show. Yeah. Yes. Uh, at that point, Planamentus assistant Melissa Meltzar, no relation, Dave points out, came up <laughs> to a resi and said, are you ready for this one? Wait until you hear this quote. We spend a lot of money with your station, uh, referring to the station a resi's press card was from, on advertising. And this is not a way to continue our relationship. That's right. I remember reading that line and he was like, Jesus Christ. You know what's great about this is that like the audacity, like the whole, <laughs> remember, the entire point of this, as we talked about last time, was that Vince had the idea to tell the truth. <laughs> That's yes. what led to this press conference that is filled with just absolute lies. Because he and Hulk Hogan, I, I mean, what an incredible performance when it comes to telling the truth. That oh, Vince yeah. McMahon and Hulk Hogan gave on, what was it, uh, July 16th, 1991? Yeah. So, yeah just the, I mean, God, if, if you ask these guys to lie, I hate what they do. <laughs> uh, so, you know, another issue we brought up was the real concern here with steroid testing and the WWE's response to the issue. Do they really care about the well-being of their performers? Do they really care about, you know, marketing uh, performers who are using steroids to children? Or do they just care about bad press? Yeah. And McMahon had a meeting with his wrestlers, according to Dave, uh, regarding steroid testing at the television taping on July 30th in Portland, Maine. At that meeting, McMahon brought up what happened with Pee Wee Herman and how Herman is now dead in the entertainment world because of it. <laughs> uh, for those who don't remember, uh, Pee Wee Herman, should we rehash? I think everyone Oh, please that, do. Right? He's, yeah, he's, but you he, know. He, he was caught whacking it in a theater. <laughs> there's really, no need, a, for, there's yeah. really no, there's no need for delicacy with this. No, and he had a kid's show, and that kid's show didn't last any longer when that came out. It was uh, That was like a joke for so long. I remember when I was in grade school, Pee Wee Herman. Yeah. God, people made Pee Wee Herman jokes all the time in the early 90s, uh, at least at my school. Um, anyway, uh, McMahon told the wrestlers that parents become very unforgiving about people marketed to their children. Uh, and he told the guys to get off the stuff immediately because if a major name was to be caught with steroids right now, it would be yet another PR nightmare for the company. Again, <laughs> what's the real concern here? There you go. Yep. Don't catch us. Don't catch us. Yes. And the last bit of housekeeping. Yes, Liam, there is more housekeeping to get to. One last note. This one, uh, pretty brief. Uh, the Bosworth defense. Yeah, Brian the Boz. Yes. Uh, who was at a Saturday Night's main event once? I remember when they worked in Seattle. I think, That's right. uh, oh, I can't remember the main event of that one. It might have been Hogan Bundy. But uh, it was late 87 when Bosworth was uh, still relatively popular. I think that was uh, right before Bo Jackson ran his ass over on Monday Night Football and his career basically <laughs> died uh, right after that. But anyway, the Bosworth defense uh, is something Meltzer talks about in regards to Hogan's appearance on Arsenio Hall. And what a hoot that was. People can go back and listen to our 
chat about that in part 3A. But Meltzer says, in football and track lingo, when guys fail a steroid test, they generally invoke what is now known as the, quote, Bosworth defense, Mm -hmm. saying they only use the drug once, quote, a long time ago, quote, to rehabilitate a knee or shoulder or whatever. Insert former injury here. Uh, Besides using the Bosworth defense, and this is Dave here, I love this, Hogan has created a new category, the Hogan defense, which consists of a guy fingered in court as a steroid user (laughs) claiming innocence by saying he weighed 196 pounds when he was 10 years old. Think about how ridiculous that one is, says Dave, especially those of you with kids who are around 10 years old. So, yeah, I I thought that was funny, just the Brian Bosworth (laughs) reference and then Dave uh, claiming that Hogan one-upped him with a Hogan defense. So, yeah. yeah. What a <laughs> unbelievable situation that holds steroid fallout in. I mean, three hours, quite frankly, wasn't enough. We could do another three hours, but <laughs> we've got another major story to get to, don't we, Liam? We do, man. And, and I, you know, to put a bow on this entire thing, obviously, folks know the steroid stuff isn't over. There's going to be more notes on this as we progress through, through part four. And, and if we delve into 1992, there's going to be an awful lot. But... It's it, it's so funny because this is all going on during a period of time where if it was one year ago, when it comes to the roster, they'd have been, uh, you know, the stuff that was actually happening within the promotion was so much more interesting than what was happening the, the year before. But it's almost kind of, you know, in, in terms of real world news, kind of getting lost amongst all of this chaos. The big news, obviously, beyond Warrior leaving, is the the acquisition of Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, in the, in, in the last part, we, we talked at length about how Slaughter didn't work out. Warrior didn't work out as badly as history has painted him out to be. Uh, and I know, just to start this off, Ric Flair going north, going to the WWF after all these years as the, the figurehead of the NWA. We're going to start off this whole piece with a bit of a soliloquy from you, Kyle, because this is... Uh, me and you both have quite a lot to say about kind of the state of Ric Flair moving into this huge story about to get into. Yeah. So this is something I think we kind of touched on back in the 1990s series mm. at the beginning. Uh, entering 1990, a new decade, there seemed to be a sense of optimism, believe it or not, for both WWF and WCW as each office believed they had the, lack of a better term, next big thing within their ranks. Warrior in the case of WWF, Sting for WCW. Now, as it turns out, neither of those gentlemen worked out as champion as well as been hoped. Uh, so the story entering 91 for both promotions, I would say, is a return to old hat, mm. for lack of a better term. Hogan for WWF, Ric Flair for WCW. Now, this is where things become important. WWF, I think it's fair to say, Liam, was more than happy to go back to Hogan at WrestleMania 7. Absolutely. Right? They Absolutely. thought business was going to go up. And they it, thought it that was it. the answer. Yeah, they thought that was the answer. But over in WCW, there was very much a feeling of tail between the legs when Flair mm-hmm. won the title for his seventh time back from Sting in the midst of a blizzard in East Rutherford, New Jersey, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> this was like this big house show they had planned. Wasn't that the same show that Lawrence Taylor was at? Like I believe Haven so, got yeah. Lawrence Taylor, and it was supposed to be this big thing, and this blizzard hits New Jersey like no one goes No to one's the show. there, yeah. yeah. Um, and by the way, that's one month Flair's title win is one month after he did the job at Starcade in this wholly unsatisfying and confusing, for that matter, payoff to the hideous black scorpion angle. <laughs> so uh, WCW, they've been looking to move on from Flair for some time, Liam. And, and truthfully, this is my take, my words. I'm 
very interested to see uh, how you uh, respond to this. Flair is the heel champion was getting played out in WCW as mm-hmm. that fan base really didn't want to boom anymore. And you can make the case. They didn't really want to boom going back to like late 87. Yeah. So this run in 91 that he's on that we're about to get into, it includes the great war games match at Russell war 91, uh, where uh, Brian obviously almost gets killed by Sid on that <laughs> power bomb attempt. Uh, but it also has these less than stellar title programs with Tatsumi Fujinami, who did not resonate with the U.S. audience at all. Uh, not really his fault. WCW didn't try. And, of course, you have big, tall, stiff El Gigante, uh, who Flair did get good matches out of reportedly at the house shows because Flair knew kind of how to work with them. And El Gigante was a new Flair opponent for, yeah, believe it or not, that mattered. I mean, people were kind of sick of seeing him work with both Sting and Luger. And apparently didn't uh, draw too badly either from where, for the standards of the time. Yeah, I mean, WCW, I mean, you talk, we talk about the WWF house shows being oh, the top this time. I mean, WCW house shows, when we say drawing pretty good, I mean, it was probably like 20 people. Okay. I mean, it was, <laughs> I mean, it was more than 20, but you get it. I mean, it was like some real sad attendance figures. I mean, house show business became basically non-existent for this yeah. promotion until Flair and Savage revived it in 96. Uh, anyway, going into the summer, TV ratings for WCW at or near their all-time low. House shows aren't drawing. The promotion's at a familiar crossroads, Mr. O'Rourke. They are trying to convince Ric Flair to drop the world title to Lex Luger, something they had failed to get him to do in 1988, 1989, (laughs) and 1990. And now it's 1991. So I pose this question to you. of Ric Flair in WCW at this point before the chaos. Right. So I think it's kind of strange to say this about the world champion of a promotion, but the booking and the kind of the constant changes at the top as well in terms of the leadership. Obviously, we had, you know, uh, Ole, you know, was kind of the booker for the bulk of 1990. There was a committee, but, you know, Flair was the booker at the start of 1990. When he decided he'd had enough, he couldn't stand Jim Hurd. He, he got out of there. There was a committee for a brief period of time. Ole takes over. Only get shit canned. There's a committee once again until Dusty arrives at the start of the year. With all that stuff, Flair, it's strange to say this about the world champion, but Flair felt like he was in limbo to me in 91, especially at the point that we're talking about, because you know, you, you're right. They, they did want to cheer him probably earlier than people realize, but turning him heel after a, a great 1989, it feels, it felt like by that point, it's like they're fighting the tide for the sake of fighting the tide just to facilitate the crowning of Sting. And then, you know, after that, probably to essentially phase him out because he didn't do a whole hell of a lot for the rest of 1990. Just the doom feud. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then obviously he winds up back on top as the heel champion with, and the key is proving how little they learned with sting. They had extra time to prepare for when sting was crowned the champion due to the knee injury that, he, that happened at the start of 1990. But by the time he gets the belt, they still don't have anything lined up for him. And flair had even less like dusty. You know, dusty comes in at the start of 1991. His first idea was Scott Steiner. And they originally it was going to be Pillman and Flair at the Clash, the first Clash in '91, and Dusty changed it to Scott Steiner, thinking that Scott would be, you know, a potential hot new babyface. And, and to that, be fair, that was something that people were salivating over at the time. They were until the match actually happened at the Clash, yes. because turns out it wasn't such an exciting proposition. They have a very kind of slow, sluggish, not that exciting time limit draw. Um, it's and, not good. And I mean, it's Scott not, Steiner it's basically. A good match. Yeah, he, Scott Steiner basically proved why he was a tag wrestler. And, yeah. you, you know, it, it's one of those things where he could come in 
to sweet move. Like you watch Scott Steiner, ironically, a few months later at Super Brawl in the match for Sting and Luger. Oh God, yeah. And he comes in, and the crowd is so hot for me. Like, oh my God, why is this guy not like the world champion? <laughs> but it's very different when you can just come in, do some power moves, and leave the match. You know, get really over, and then leave the match, as opposed to being a single, especially on top where you've got to go long. And he, it was very clear he didn't have it. And truthfully. No one decided to push Scott Steiner as a single for, you know, until the big pop of pump days. Exactly. For a long time after that, when the Steiners were completely exhausted as a unit in America. By the end of the year, in 91, the only thing that they look even remotely interested in doing with Flair is Luger or Dustin. Um, Dustin had obviously come with Dusty. Flair had done commentary on shows uh, on TV saying that he would be defending the belt against Dustin sooner than people thought. And this was like Ooh. April, May of... Ni- this was April, May of 91. He's dropping that in on commentary. Obviously, not by accident, being told. The Horsemen, people you know, forget the Horsemen in that great war games. The, the Horsemen unit just kind of peters out. Like, it just kind of it's kind of comes to a really unsatisfying. They just kind of split up without really having a, a breakup. They just kind of do different things. I, I really think that like, people should not sleep on the fact that Dusty being back as the booker is a potential contributing factor to all of this. This, this situation we're going to talk about with Flair. Because... Dusty's booking around this period of time is just moving pieces into place based on kind of the whims of the moment. And Flair being the head of this, I mean, he got the belt in the same fashion. Ah, it, you know, give it to Flair. We don't really exactly know where we're going next, but we'll probably, you know, really, Flair's the best guy to get him there, whoever it's going to be. And and it's just so slapdash. And in terms of what I think of, I mean, Flair was, you know, Flair was Flair, but people didn't want to boo him anymore. They had mm-hmm. nothing, they had they had they didn't want to boo him. They had nothing new for him. This the, the booking nature of the promotion was not suitable for Flair at this point. And like you say, it's it's time to to hit the bricks. Yeah. So two things I want to pick up on there, um, and then we can get into the meat of the story here. What happens? What everyone knows is coming. Um, as far as Flair getting the title in '91, um, that was very much a favor back to him for him agreeing to be the payoff for the Black Scorpion. Like, mm. the plan was never to go back to Ric Flair at the top of 91. No, of course not. It was Sting, just, Sting was the guy. Sting was the guy, and they came up with that hideous Black Scorpion storyline, and they didn't know how to pay it off. They didn't know who it was going to be. Mm. I mean, that is unbelievable stuff. And so they, you know, Flair's like, all right, I'll be it. And they were going to have him win the title as the Black Scorpion. It was the first plan. And Sting was like, you're telling me after all this, I'm going to lose. Like, this storyline has sucked, and I'm going to lose. And he has a point from his perspective. But (laughs) the way it played out, him beating Flair as the Black Scorpion, the Black Scorpion unmasking, it's Flair. And then Flair coming back and beating him as just Norm Flair is, like, really shitty. Yeah. Especially at a house show. I mean, that's just, like, poor storytelling um, it's something you'd expect from modern day WWE, quite frankly. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, the flair and people not wanting to boo him. And, you know, I say it goes all the way back to 87, 88. People may be, you know, raising eyebrows over that because 1988 was like the classic horseman lineup, right? Flair, mm-hmm. Arn, Tully, and Barry. But man, watch flair at Starcade 87 against Ronnie Garvin. Oh, the crowd's dude. cheering for him. Like he's totally <laughs> turned baby face. And, This is a different podcast for a different day, as I like to say. But they had just purchased UWF. They had that infusion of new talent. And you took it the lay of the, you look at the lay of the land. If Luger and or Sting were not ready by 88 to be the top baby face, 
Ric Flair should have been the top baby face in 1988. And he could have feuded with the Horsemen, I think. Um, You know, that's a feud that we never got. And I think it would have been really interesting. And, you know, look at when business did pick up. The only time it picked up uh, between 88 and, like, 93 was 89, right? And what Mm -hmm. was Ric Flair? He was pretty much he's on his way to being a baby face and there was a baby face. Yes. So, I mean, it's funny that, and again, different podcast, different day. When you study WCW for the preceding few years up to where we are talking about today, they were constantly looking, who's the next big baby face? And everyone assumed it would be Sting. Well, they, most people assumed it was Sting. And if not him, Luger. Yeah. But the top baby face should have been Ric Flair. <laughs> yeah, we talked about this before, about the, the if they had kept Flair as a babyface in 89, Luger was a great heel during 89, yes. that, that was his peak. The, the logical thing to do would have been to go from Flair to Luger, Luger to Sting, if that's what they really wanted. But that again, that's even later than what they could have done. I love the idea of, of the Horsemen turning on Flair, getting a new member, whoever it is that's going to kind of lead the group with Flair on top, because you can bring guys along while Flair's the top guy, and it's especially poignant during a period of time when you know, obviously the WWF's taken over and they're, they're, they're kind of the, the clear front runner, and there's becoming more of a tribalism that kind of stays till the bitter end with WCW, those NWA fans in the South who were going to support it till its dying day, and to them, Flair was the guy. Even yeah, Whether he's a face or a heel, Flair's the guy in this promotion. So since that's the case anyway, and people are, you know, the people who are sticking with the NWA are rallying behind it probably because they're, they're attraction to Flair as a, as a personality – it makes all the sense in the world. And and the fact that it took them so long to do was a crying shame. The fact that they actually did it and then undid it is is, is class. You know? Like yeah. that's just that's that's what you'd expect. You know, going back to eighty eight and whatnot and this idea of like Flair splitting from and being a babyface and feuding with the horseman, well, here's a notion that I've thought about. Lex Luger, we all agree, mm-hmm. was better as a heel, right? Yeah. Lex Luger should have taken over the horseman. And Absolutely. And then you had to, like, kind of waste your time at 88 and 89. And, you know, it could have been Lex, Arn, Tully, and Barry as the new horseman. I know that there are people right now, traditionalists, who are getting very nervous, very itchy, perhaps squeamish, not liking this idea of a four-horseman group without Ric Flair. But I just think that's what the time period called for in 88. And then, you know, you mentioned our previously mentioned idea for – Luger getting the title as a heel in 89, and then being able to measure Sting as a babyface versus Flair still as yeah. a babyface. Um, something that should be noted, to be fair to the promotion and the revolving door of bookers, <laughs> when it came to getting Ric Flair babyface, there's somebody who always had to fight to do that. <laughs> Ric Flair! Yep. He you never don't... wanted to do it. He hated it. Like the whole need, the whole quick turn at the beginning of '90 to set up the Sting program was all his idea. He it didn't want to be a babyface anymore. And remember, I mean, it, this kept going the whole '90s. In '99, oh god, people are weeping for this man in the crowd when he comes back, and he wants to turn heel and do a double turn in his program with Hogan, who the audience hate. Like. That was a terrible decision, by the way. Absolutely oh. terrible decision. Oh, I mean, yeah, that, that killed business uh, dead. I mean, my God, they never recovered from that. No. I mean, you know, Flair's a babyface challenging Hogan. People have talked about it uh, a lot. I know I've said it on multiple podcasts through the years. That show, uh, Super Brawl 9, where Flair was still the babyface, did on par with Austin McMahon, St. Pal- Valentine's Day Massacre. Yes, it did. 
So WCW was not dead yet going into 99. They died shortly thereafter, although they didn't know it yet. But again, different podcast for a different day. Um, you know, Ric Flair, I just think as a heel champion in WCW in the early 90s had gotten quite stale. Absolutely, he had. And, and, and it's, it's key to note here, obviously, Dave Meltzer's notes from the Wrestling Observer News as of the time are uh, our primary source material for this, so I again want to give a shout out to Dave. Um, from the Observer, this is the final week of June, uh, the same week that Zahorian went to trial. Uh, there's a note in there that says the future of Ric Flair in World Championship Wrestling is very much in doubt. According to four different company sources, on Monday, during contract negotiations with Jim Hurd and Flair's attorney Dennis Guthrie, uh, Hurd told Guthrie the company was giving Flair 30 days notice, and rumors began that Flair's final day with the company would be either July 14th in Baltimore or July 22nd in Los Angeles. As of Tuesday, Flair hadn't gotten notified by the office of his notice. Hurd denied the story and said that the two sides were simply negotiating a t- contract extension, uh, which from all accounts would require Flair to take a huge pay cut from his one-year contract estimated, at gu- guaranteeing him between $700,000 and $750,000 a year. Uh, Flair is actually still under contract to WCW through June 1st of 92 on his existing deal. Not for long, he isn't. Yep. <laughs> Flair was fired by WCW on Monday, effective immediately after both sides failed to reach an agreement on a contract extension that would be from June 1st, 92 through to May 31st of 94. Uh, the official word was faxed Monday afternoon by Jim Hurd to Flair's attorney in Charlotte that Flair's contract was being terminated, effective August 1st, 1991. Flair was scheduled to drop the WCW title to Barry Windham on July 1st in Macon, Georgia, in a revised plan decided upon within the past week. WCW officials weren't expecting Flair to show up in Macon, and the revised plan was for Wyndham to defend the title against Lex Luger in Baltimore, this is the Great American Bash, of course, uh, with Wyndham's title victory airing on TBS either this coming Saturday night or the day before the pay-per-view. I guess it can be reported here that the original plan was for Flair to drop the title to Lex Luger in Baltimore at the Bash. Uh, the hang-up was that the two sides haven't been able to come to terms on a contract extension that had been verbally agreed upon seemingly forever. WCW offered Flair $350,000 a year, which would cut his current salary in half, or slightly more than in half. Uh, Flair wasn't willing to take such a massive pay-cut for the extension period to begin with, plus there was the ego involved in earning far less than Lex Luger, who will earn $600,000 next year, and also less than Sting. My God. Yes, and interesting, it was also less than it had been offered to Sid Vicious in the failed attempt to get him to stay earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. And I didn't know this one. It is less than WCW offered Randy Savage to jump in the summer. Mm-hmm. So, Classic. You know, yeah, obviously Randy Savage had done the retirement storyline. Uh, we talked a lot about Randy in part uh, – 3A, you know, what they were doing with him, the match made in heaven. But, yeah, WCW made a play for Randy Savage in the summer of 91. And what's interesting here is, again, some fans are going to get mad when I say this, but let me explain because it's actually something I had read in The Observer and, and Meltzer kind of rationalized it in his own head, and I tend to agree with him. Offering Sid more money than Ric Flair in 91, or really in any year in the history of man, <laughs> sounds stupid, right? <laughs> but... If you put yourself in 1991 shoes, Sid was younger. There was more left to do with him in WCW, right? We're talking Flair Stale as the heel champion. What are you going to do? So at least you could justify it that way. I'm not saying I agree with paying Sid Vicious more money than Ric Flair, but you can at least justify that with the youth. 
And you can sell that. Like if Flair's like, what the hell? You offered Sid this. You're only offering me that. Well, you can say, well, Rick, you're a lot older than Sid. But Randy Savage is in Flair's age bracket. And yes. that's a whole different thing. Again, I guess you can make the case, well, he's fresh. He's from the WWF. I don't know. I mean, if I'm Flair, and we're going to get into some stuff Flair had going on in his personal life at this time, there's no way I'm taking this deal. Oh, no, it's horseshit. And it's funny now, when you look at this with, with modern eyes, when winning and losing is so commonplace amongst like top stars, which, yeah, again, is a bad thing but rather than a good thing. But it's so classic. Like the whole idea that, you know, hey, Flair, we want you to put over Luger and Sting. And now that you have, we're going to pay you far less than them. And that's like the, you know, it's, it's the nature of the business at that time when star power was, was so valuable. I mean, and it is now, obviously, but the, the, the WWE doesn't treat it that way, which is you know, a, a, kind of a massive problem. But here, during this period of time, Flair is basically tasked. And again, like you said, in 1990, he was the booker. He decided to turn heel so that he could put over Sting. He, I mean, he was in this position to make the next generation, and rather than being rewarded at contract time, it's, okay, thanks for, for doing your job. And by the way, as you're continuing to do this job, we're going we're gonna to cut your salary in half. Okay, and he's... Probably looking at the lay of the land too, and he's going to get phased out because you talk about like the Doom feud. It's probably going to be even lower than that in '91, and so he's not going to get opportunities to you know main event houses and make some extra money um, on top of that too. So his yeah his earning power is going to be far less. And you know again, there's a very important note why Flair was concerned about his earning power in 1991 that we'll get to momentarily. Yes, and again, like we say, what was probably next for him was Dustin. And who do you think is going to win that with Dusty's the book? <laughs> like, it's just, it's, it's what you'd expect. That was such a big newsletter talking point. You know, now that we're 30 years removed from it, like we can all, you know, nobody like really cares. Everyone's like, oh, Dustin got shit on too much. You mentioned this on Top yeah. Nation when you joined us about how unfairly Dustin was evaluated early in his career. But it was very much because Dusty was the booker and he was pushing him so hard. Um, that caused resentment. Now that, you know, nobody cares about that resentment, you can, you know, put two objective eyes on it and say, yeah, this guy was pretty good. What was the fuss? Well, you know, at the time, you know, pe- people didn't like Dusty Rhodes the way they do now and remember him. Exactly. D- Dusty was known for the nepotistic nature of, of what he was doing, even with the, with the booking team he creates, which we'll talk about because it, it plays a factor in all of this. He basically surrounds himself with like his crew, the Kevin Sullivan's, the Mike Graham's, the Barry Windham's, who are his Florida guys. That, and, and so there was there was just that in the mind that okay this is Dusty's crew Dusty's way and people were concerned about that even they even we met, I think we mentioned this when Dusty went back to WCW they had to put a clause in his deal that said he couldn't be a wrestler anymore at the same time because they were afraid of what was going to happen but if it can't be him it may be his son and because there are certain things happening uh, elsewhere on the card as I'm sure we can get to at some point uh, certainly looks like other baby faces are kind of being phased down or made to be not that big of a deal while they're kind of getting Dustin ready for what looks to be a feud with Flair after Flair drops the belt. doesn't happen. Um, to Dustin say, is definitely, if you watch TV from this time, he's the st- most strongly pushed baby face in terms of clean wins. Clean like, he's wins. not the top baby face. I mean, Luger and Sting are still above him. Some others are still above him. But in terms of, like, always winning clean Always up. He's always up. He's always, if, 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 if he gets double teamed after a match, he clears the ring. He's doing the running when he's outnumbered and he's cleaning house. He's, he's super strong. Yes. Yeah. No, no baby face was, you know, was made to uh, appear as omnipotent as young Dustin <laughs> at that time. 
Meltzer says, to say there's been plenty of fallout regarding the firing of Ric Flair by World Championship Wrestling on July 1st would be the understatement of the year. In 1990, Flair was negotiating to get a contract extension and or a contract release, which would allow him to go to the WWF before he dropped the title. Uh, when Flair finally lost the belt to Sting in July at the Bash, Jim Hurd refused to give Flair a contract release. What was agreed upon was that if a contract extension hadn't been agreed by a certain date, a date of which I'm not sure but has probably just recently passed, that either side would have the right to terminate the current contract of $14,000 plus per week, given 30 days notice. This is the escape clause that Flair actually wanted. Yeah, and I think we'll rehash this in a little bit. Um, just the whole thing, because it can be maybe confusing to listeners and we can just put it in simpler terms. Anyway, <sighs> um, like we've been alluding to and maybe out and out said, it's time for Ric Flair to leave WCW, even more so than Sid earlier in the year, right? We were in agreement that if mm-hmm. you're Sid, uh, you know, WCW is trying to get you to stay and you want to leave. I mean, you're taking a look at the lay of the land here. Oh, WCW <laughs> absolutely stinks <laughs> at this point in 1991. I mean, sticks. I mean, it had never been worse, right? To this uh, point in time. You know what? 1990 really was an awful year. <laughs> an underrated all-time bad year. But it, it, it was peaking, if you can call it that, around this time. I would say only 93, like that back half of 93, was oh, worse yeah. than the middle of 91 for WCW. I mean, it was bad. Like, 90. Oz. Oz. Yeah, 90 at least. You had, like, these good tag matches, like the Midnight Express, who they were ironically trying to bury <laughs> yeah. by giving them apparently 25-minute matches on pay-per-view where they knock it <laughs> on the park every time. Um, you had that. Like, there was, like, 91, you referenced Oz. Ironically, under Dusty here in 91, WWE starts feeling, dare I say, more WWF-ish. Yeah, Particularly definitely. at Super Brawl. A lot of cartoonish characters, the big Joshes oh, with of the, the world. Yes. I mean, there's just all these just terrible characters being introduced. We've talked about some of the bad characters being introduced on WWF programming uh, in 1991. Wow, WCW topped them, which is hard to do. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, Flair had already put over Sting. That did not work. It, the uh, sky did not open up. The sun did not shine forever after the Great American Bash 90. Uh, for reasons that weren't all necessarily Flair and Sting's fault. But it, it didn't work, and that's the reality of it. Flair did not want to put over Luger, which we'll talk about later on. Uh, and there's no one really else left to draw with for Ric Flair. Like, if you look, okay, like, all right, Dustin, I guess. Um, you know, we've talked about that so much. I hadn't really considered it as much going into the show. So, um, and even they, but, it almost makes that, that almost feels like that's not actually even going to really draw. That's just about no. making Dustin because Dustin's yes. they're using Flair to make Dustin a draw. You're right. It's like what we just talked about earlier. Flair's going to be phased down the card and not put in a position yeah. uh, to be important. You're right. He's just going to put over Dustin Rhodes. That's not a, a drawing match necessarily that will be on top because he's not going to be the champion. Um, and you know, Jim Hurd, yeah, he, he wanted to phase him down the card for sure. And then the, <laughs> Spartacus, that name <laughs> came to mind as I was doing the notes. So how true is that, that Jim Hurd wanted to change Ric Flair's name and call him Spartacus? They all say it. I believe it because of the time frame that this is happening. Where the, the, wasn't the deal that Turner bought like a massive back catalog of classic movies at the time that they were going to air constantly, which is why they got the deal for the you know, they got the Wizard of Oz uh, video, and that was the whole idea of like, oh well, we can do a Wizard of Oz wrestler, 
And that was part of the deal. Right. So as part of like you know all these old classic movies, they figured, hey, Spartacus, maybe we own the rights to the name Spartacus. So there you go. That's part of the reason. Yeah, Ric Flair had a very weird haircut during this time, and yeah. we're thinking like they have to put like an earring in or something. Yeah, is that the get up? I can't remember. They, they briefly touch on this on that first Flair DVD that WWE released, <laughs> which is a uh, highlight we need to get to later on, by the way. Yes, one of my favorite all time quotes. <laughs> I, I hope I can tell the story the way I once did. Uh, anyway, WCW, let's let the cat out of the bag here a little bit, Liam. It does actually improve somewhat dramatically late in 1991. Late in 91, like mm-hmm. November. But the optics of Flair leaving here, right on the heels of Sid just bolting the promotion. Like, Sid didn't even have, like, this contract. So Sid's just like, I'm leaving. <laughs> right? On a valid deal. <laughs> like, no, you're on a contract. Sid's like, no, I want to go main event WrestleMania instead. <laughs> okay. And they're like, and they're like, okay, yeah. They just like <laughs> let him go. Okay, you go main event WrestleMania. Just, um, it, it, that does not justify the short-term nosedive. The fact they improved somewhat late in the year and became, you know, people like myself and I'm sure you love late '91, early '92 in the middle of '92 WCW. But it's not like it did great business. And again, the optics of Flair leaving here right on the heels of that Sid thing is just horrible and makes the promotion look so bad. Yeah, it's it's interesting because in a funny way, which we talked about, we kind of hinted at this at the end of the last part. We talked about how, you know what, WWF was stale for a lot of 1990. And, and during the course of 91, when they got, you know, they got Sid, they turned Jake, they got Flair. You know, Piper's back, Savage's back, Taker's hot, they got Hogan. It feels like things are fresh, finally. After, after, after a couple of years of being fairly stale in the WWF, things are fresh again. And it may have just been that, you know, things had been the kind of the same way in both sides long enough. Because it was the same for WCW. They had, you know, Luger, Sting, Flair. But it felt, you know, again, when, when Flair goes, it leads to Rick Rude, Ricky Steamboat coming in and, and, and things getting freshened up. You know, focus on Paulie Dangerously and, and, and the new group. And I, I, it kind of felt in a strange way, while it was it was not good for WCW, obviously, in terms of that, that short-term nosedive you mentioned, it felt like it was something that kind of inevitably needed to happen to scorch the earth. Yes, uh, both sides, spoiler alert, by the fall of 91, just feel way fresher. Yeah. And with, with Flair moving. And, you know, again, you don't want to lose Ric Flair, especially, you know, when you look like a complete ass doing it. But... <laughs> I don't know. It's very interesting. Uh, it's just the optics. Again, sometimes optics are the most important thing, and people made fun of WCW a lot, and, and we'll talk about that, you know, the infamous Great American Bash pay-per-view momentarily. But you hit on something, and I want to follow up on it. Ric Flair going to WWF in 1991 versus Ric Flair potentially going to WWF the year before, 1990, because he had wanted to after dropping the title to stick. Yeah. I wanted to examine what was better for Flair what was better for the WWF? Maybe what was better for WCW as well. What do we think about that? Because if he leaves in 90, right after dropping the title of Sting, he's obviously getting the spot that Sergeant Slaughter got. Right? Yes. He will never get Sergeant Slaughter. So from that perspective, it's a huge win for WWF. Big time. Had he left the previous year. But, as we're about to get to momentarily, he's the champion in 91. And he's about to leave with the belt. So what's a better scenario, says you? 
Hmm, that's actually, when I actually just examine this, like, from the year-on-year perspective, 90 is the no-brainer for me. 91, you know, it's like, it's part of an ensemble cast, but 90, as we talked about in our previous series, is where the real, I mean, Dino Bravo's headlining the house shows with Hogan. You know, it's like, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't get really any sadder than that. So, I, I think that when we, we kind of break this down, the belt does kind of count for a lot. Or at least it should have. <laughs> yes, it should have. But it, I don't it's think learn it really doesn't. But yeah. it should have on paper. Yes. If, if you're looking at this as a not looking at what did happen in both cases, because obviously you can't with 1990 anyway. 1990 is the clear winner for me in terms of the timing of, of Flair being the true top guy on the heel side in the WWF. 91 on paper looks like it should be even better because you got a lot of people for Flair to work with. You got. Hogan, who needs a hot new challenger anyway. Um, there's a, you know, the, the scenes, again, the scenes feeling fresher. It's not just going to be, you know, the same old WF, but Ric Flair's here, which it would have been in 1990. The belt should have helped. If, if I'm Flair and I'm leaving around this time and I've got the belt, I'm thinking that I've hit the jackpot, <laughs> which is funny because I don't think he really truly did. No, and what do you, it's fun from Ric Flair's perspective. What do you think? Because I think we just kind of examined from WF's perspective. It, it's interesting. The whole notion of getting Flair fresh off a highly publicized loss, but avoiding the hideous Sergeant Slaughter angle. Like, it's kind of, you know, six, I don't know if it's six to one, half a dozen or not. It probably isn't. I think you have to weigh those two things and then take a look at getting him with the belt. But what about Flair? Like, do you think it was better for him to go in 91 to WWF? Hmm. I'm gonna say probably not. Okay. Probably not. I, I I feel like because Flair's best use is when he can be the guy, and mm-hmm. and an extended run. But I mean, during the, and again, I don't want to jump the gun too much on what actually ends up happening. But Flair is fighting for for real estate space at the top of the card with other. Prominent characters are all again at the same time. We mentioned the returning Savage, the returning Piper, Sid Justice is is brand new, you know, huge push right out the gate. Heel Jake is gaining momentum. The Undertaker is probably at his peak of of, of actual being legitimately red hot uh, as uh, you know, in, in, as part of his introduction. All of this to circle and orbit Hogan. I think that Flair had he come in in 1990, well, I think he would have had less top guys to work with certainly, I think that he's probably not going to get the same treatment that he... He doesn't get treated bad, but when you actually look at Flair's run that he actually gets, him really being, like, super, super key is not that long. It's maybe a year. Yes, and I think a big, for Flair's perspective, if he leaves in 90, he probably made events WrestleMania with Hogan. And we That's what I think. Because he's going to beat the Warrior, yep. and then he's going to you know, probably job to Hogan at WrestleMania 7. Most likely. So, but, you know, I'm sure we know Hulk Hogan. No one loves losing to Hulk Hogan quite like Ric Flair does. <laughs> so I'm sure he would have been happy to do that. Um, what he would have done afterwards, it's interesting. From WCW's perspective, I think it would have been better to lose him a year early. Honestly, just get and, like, be rid of the contract. You're probably right. So, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. And there's another uh, angle we need to take on this thing. If Flair leaves in 90, 
Hulk Hogan's reputation isn't in the mud yet. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I, you know, you've kind of convinced me here that had he left in 90, it would have been better, even though he wasn't the champion and had just lost, you know, on hype. Because WWF was so good at pretending that stuff didn't happen anyway. Of course, of course they were. Yeah, they came in, it was like it never happened. It's a fresh coat of paint. This is Ric Flair. We've heard about him for years. Yeah, if they wanted to allude to his history, which they, they rarely did, but they did in some cases. They, they probably would have promoted him better than the fact that he would, because like, the whole issue with him coming in as champion, they didn't want to acknowledge that belt as being that important. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, like, if he didn't have it, I wonder if they would have promoted him as being more important. <laughs> exactly. Rick Flair should have come in in 1990. 1990 was the time. If, if the, I think that's the choice time. That the, the landscape is more open for Flair. Hogan is stronger. Again, think about that. Hogan coming back from the summer off into yeah, I mean, a promotion where Ric Flair. Feud, the he probably feud. just... Yeah, he probably just beats Earthquake clean at SummerSlam rather than the DQ finish, and they don't drag that out in the fall, which didn't draw. Yeah, it had to be 1990. 1991, the, the big match that everybody was talking about was, well, they're going to do Flair and Hogan. Well, Hogan's just taking this fuck. He's just getting, he's walking to a hail of bullets, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. publicly, and, and he's not going to do any better as time goes on. So, yeah, I, I feel fairly safe in saying 90's the year. I wonder how much Ric Flair weighed when he was 10 years old. Was it 196 pounds? <laughs> I'm not sure he weighed 100, 186 at this point. Yeah, good point. Yeah. 196 pounds when I'm give, 10 years old. What give, is that? <laughs> give me a break, Terry. Uh, late last week, says Meltzer, a meeting was held with Turner Home Entertainment about changing the pay-per-view main event to Lex Luger versus Barry Windham. Uh, Turner Home Entertainment vetoed the idea, saying that all the publicity had already gone out for Flair versus Luger. The legend versus the legacy. That poster can be found if you search it on YouTube. In- or not on YouTube, just the internet in general. Google.com, maybe if you've heard of it. <laughs> this, the main event change, may have been somebody's idea from the start, says Meltzer, since the Flair versus Luger match had barely been pushed on television. Uh, WCW will have to get itself a new actual belt since Flair actually owns the current belt, and under the circumstances, there doesn't seem to be a reason for him to return it. Uh, I wouldn't return it either, and that belt becomes an issue, doesn't it? Yes, it uh, does. As the year moves on. Big lawsuits. Uh, I was a little confused here. I know, you know, we're kind of shuffling different notes around in our notes to peel back the curtain for people. Was Turner Home Entertainment willing to voluntarily false advertise the Flair Luger match was still taking place, or was this note before the Flair firing? This is took before. Place? This okay, is before. okay. So okay. the idea here is that. But you know, is, when they say late last week at the start of that note there, this is pre-firing. So the okay. I, the idea was somebody went to Turner Home, Turner Home Entertainment and said, you know, how about we change the pay-per-view main event to Luger versus Wyndham for the belt instead of Luger versus Flair? Uh, so clearly, it's on their mind to to get the belt off Flair anyway. And again, a lot a lot of this, whether you want to say it's because there's a political reason to kind of get out of the picture or because this negotiation is going on and they just want the belt off him immediately, knowing there's a very good chance that this could actually happen. What actually does end up taking place. And unfortunately they get gazumped anyway and Flair pisses off with the belt. Yeah. And when they talk about the publicity already going out for the great American match 91, <laughs> a certain new uh, word caught or a series of words, a phrase, if you will, from Meltzer and the observer caught my eye. Leo Mark, this was a late addition to our notes. Uh, Meltzer mentioned that there was a, quote, expensive rap video produced to yes. promote the Great American Bash 91. 
Now, when you think about 1991 WCW and rap, who do you think of? I think of the one and only PN News. Yo, baby, yeah. yo, baby, yo. Okay. Should we play this right now? Absolutely, we're going to play this right now. Watch live 14. See the WCW crew. It's the Bash 91 on pay-per-view. Word up, Nikita Koloff will be taking on the stage. Fate is gonna bust a move all over the ring. Now the nature boy, you know his name is Ray Flair, is gonna walk that aisle. Let's better beware. It's the great American Bash. You had better be there. That is, I, you know what? I've got to be honest with the listeners. This is the first time today when you sent me this that I have ever seen this. <laughs> I, c- I cannot believe that this is not wrestling legend. This is one of the, this is like the kind of thing that Russell Crap would have jumped all over and everybody would be talking about it. Like if this came up in like 2003. Uh, just insane. <laughs> you know, I love the I rap love game. And I am here to tell you that this is a piece of fucking shit. <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. <laughs> Whenever I see PN News, um, I always laugh because I think of that Mick Foley promo in ECW <laughs> when he's talking about the magical land of WCW. Yeah. And, he goes, and he goes, I watched a farm kid from Nebraska become an overnight rap sensation. <laughs> and I, I, that always it, at least gets me through it. But yeah, PN News, of course, he rapped. You know this what? was very bad. This, it's awful. I got a detour very, very quickly to something that I thought was fucking brilliant that I watched the other day. We were talking about Mick Foley and ECW with these WCW, with these references. Not a WCW reference, but this is fucking great. Mick Foley in the, <laughs> in the ECW arena cuts a promo as he's bound for the WWF saying, and this is the quote, the same fans that are in the crowd right now chanting, you sold out, will be chanting my name in the Philadelphia spectrum when I'm wrist locking Mabel. <laughs> Another rapper. Yeah. Another not good rapper. Uh, yes. Another not good wrestler. <laughs> PN News. Another one of the uh, dynamite hirings uh, by Dusty Rhodes. Yes. Uh, PN News, by the way, was in a scaffold match at the Great American Bash. Oh, I will mention Lord. that momentarily when we talk about uh, the Great American Bash 91 proper. What a pay-per-view that was. But it's we've a- got to talk about, um, I guess, Flair and... Because I want to hit on this Barry Windham idea that they're talking about, too, but yeah. deliver the so, next note. Yeah, Melter says here that there was openly talked about fear within WCW that Flair was going to hold the company up for a better deal on his 92-94 extension before agreeing to drop the belt to Luger. That is why, at least on the surface, for the abrupt change to the championship plans for Flair to drop the belt on July 1st in Macon to Barry Windham, who, ironically, doesn't even have a WCW contract. I am crying. About Barry Windham says there. Yeah. All right. All right. Rick's going to leave. We got to get the ball off him. Who should we put on? How about a guy that also does not have a WCW contract? <laughs> Barry Windham. Um, so this is interesting. And this goes back to why Flair is, you know, one of many reasons Flair is not taking this renegotiated deal that's like half of what he's making already. Uh, Meltzer had said that Flair was trying to get into the gold gym business at mm. this time. And he needed proof of stable income to do so because he's going to, like, open up not just, like, one but, like, multiple. So, you know, if you're getting your salary cut in half, I don't think the Gold's Gym people are going to like that too much. No. So that's important to note. Um, What do we think about this idea 
of Flair losing in impromptu fashion to Barry Windham on July 1st in Macon before the pay-per-view. And then just taking Flair. I mean, obviously, Flair doesn't work the pay-per-view anyway. But, you know, Windham beats Flair at this July 1st date. And then he goes on to defend Luger. What do we think about that is kind of the 11th hour plan? It's the shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> a spade, a spade. Wyndham was feuding with a yellow dog. <laughs> Another sure. awful, awful sure. dusty concept. I'm sure you have many things you'd like to say about the yellow dog, wouldn't oh, you? Oh, my God. It, it's, again, it made no sense. This is, this is the way Dusty was at this time. Just disparate parts. Wyndham was a heel. In the, the four horsemen dog. with Flair. I know they In were the falling horsemen. apart after what Sid had left, but Sid, yeah, Sid they were leaves. Arn's kind of doing the, the the side deal with Paulie dangerously. Flair's not hanging around the horsemen anymore. Wyndham's just kind of doing his own thing, fume with a yellow dog. There's a bounty on the yellow dog's mask, another you know, another winning concept. Just move the pieces where we want them right now without logically moving things into place. If the whole idea is to make Luger Giving it to Wyndham for the first time just to lose it to Lex doesn't help Lex at all. No, and spoiler alert, Ric Flair did not go for that plan. <laughs> the <laughs> Ric Flair-Barry Wyndham match, as we've been alluding to, did not transpire July 1st in Macon. Now, I want to get to the $6 million question here. Go for it. Why do you think Rick never wanted to do the honors for Lex? Now, obviously, it's a case of money here. But this is the fourth year in a row yeah. he's not wanting a job to Luger. What's the deal with that, man? What's the deal with this Ric Flair not jobbing to Lex Luger? I, 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 there's, there's a lack of respect, probably, for, for Lex, you know? I mean, I, I, can, I can see, hmm, conspiracy hat on. Lex Luger being a slightly taller, better bodied, also long blonde hair version. This smells of Triple H Jericho in, uh, in 1999, the, the angst there. Of Luger looking like, he doesn't look like Flair, but the, you know, the, the younger guy who again was, you know, he had, Luger got a lot of shit at the time for not being mm-hmm. as good as believed, as, as he was promoted to be. I mean, he got, he took it pretty fucking hard actually from the newsletters and stuff when you read it. Mm-hmm. But, and, and, and obviously he's no Ric Flair and he's no, he's, that, that's not what Lex is going to be. I just think that there was a that there's either a lack of respect or an inherent jealousy where he didn't want Luger to be the guy. He didn't want to make Luger. That's that's ultimately what this comes down to. He had no desire to make him. If it was just about the timing in each case, it would have happened eventually. And mm-hmm. Luger Luger held it against him forever. And like yeah, I know, hopefully I'm sure he doesn't now. But like during you know, the whole nineties, I mean, it was it was you know it stuck in Luger's craw that Flair never made him. It's interesting that Flair was so willing to put over Sting mm-hmm. and not Luger. And this is a narrative that until recent years, I didn't kind of grasp or fall to. Like, to me, okay, Sting is better than Luger, I guess. I, you can see why promoters would favor Sting over Luger. And Sting had better matches, and he was better in the ring at this time, certainly. Uh, you know, Sting, you know, his in-ring work faded uh, just like Luger's did. Mm-hmm. Uh, just not as quickly. But I don't think there was that chasm between Sting and Luger, really. That no. Some people seem to think that exists. Like, like growing up, I, I don't know if it was the same for you, it was always like, oh, yeah, well, you know, of course Rick doesn't want to put over Luger. Luger stinks. Sting was the guy. He had a job to Sting. But, like, if you look at WCW 1989 through 1997, that whole period, and you know, obviously Luger, you know, leaves at one point. But 
yeah, Sting is better, but he's not like a ton better, really. Uh, both of them, ironically, go on to have their best success in 97, chasing Hulk Hogan. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, here's a question on that same note. You talk about the chasm and, and, and you know, there's going to be people that kind of on both sides of this aisle, I'm sure. But let's just put it to you this way. And I'll ask you this question. Who was hotter at their peak? Was it Lex after turning on the, or the horseman, turning on him, challenging Flair at Starcade, or Sting at his hottest, whenever that would be? Because I don't necessarily think that that was uh, when he actually got the belt at the bash. It was probably no, it was before pro- that. It was, pro- it was probably the clash when he blew out his the, knee. Yeah, exactly. The start of the year. So who do you feel was hotter at their peak working with Flair? It was kind of close. The fact that we never got the Sting match, that he tears Mm. the knee at Flash 10, makes it hard to answer. Because I'm sure you've seen it. The Mm -hmm. Johnson City six-man at the beginning of 90. Yes. Where it's like Sting, Flair, and Arn against JTEX. And, like, the crowd is freaking in for Sting. My God. That was always a hot town for them. But, I mean, like, woo! I mean, that's like Canadian Stampede. Uh, you know, Money in the Bank 2011 territory for that crowd. That crowd was fired up, man. That's a good old school wrestling crowd and a fun match to watch uh, from the main event. So it's tough to answer, but again, Luger was really over in 88. And let's examine this. Okay. He always kind of got just bad luck, I think. In 88, when he challenges Flair at Starcade, that's right after Turner buys the company. Yeah. And Flair used that as leverage for him. And he did, like, they knew Ric Flair, you know, Ted Turner, you know, they always, like, joked, like, Ted would walk into the locker room and say, oh, where's Rick? <laughs> then that was, like, the only guy he knew until Hogan, yeah. until Hogan got there. And so Flair leveraged, you know, he got dusty turfed in 88. <laughs> he was he gone. So that was a tough spot. Um, But it was kind of like a shitty story when you look at it that, Luger chased Flair all 1988 and then just never wins. <laughs> like, that's not good storytelling, really. It's something like modern WWE would do yeah. with the baby face. Um, 89, again, a year later at Starcade, the plan was for Flair, now as a baby face, to lose to heel Luger. And Flair didn't want to do that because he felt, no, I'm going to lose it to Sting. The decision had already been made. And that was the problem, too, in 88. Flair had that match with Sting at the first class yeah. that took place smack dab in, in the middle of Luger's first big babyface run. And that's what screwed Lex more than anything. Yeah. Is, like, people saw that, man, oh, Sting's the guy. You know, after <laughs> everything else, Sting is the guy. There's going to be a moment in time when we put the title on him. Um, we've got to just, you know, save Flair's big loss for Sting. Nobody else matters. And it, and it screwed over Luger in 88. And then 89... You know, when they're on opposite sides of the fence, I think Luger should have won the title at Starcade 89. It would have certainly beat that dumb Iron Man turn. Oh, that stunk. Yeah, that's yeah. not good. Uh, now, to be fair, they came up with a good battle plan in that Iron Man tournament. If you remember. Yep, Sting, Luger, beats, Sting beats Flair, which Sting obviously sets motion. Yes, at the end. But earlier in the night, Luger beat Sting. And that was supposed to be the impetus for Luger as a heel being Sting's first challenger after Sting beats Flair at WrestleWar 90. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens? We all know. Yeah. Sting fucks up his knee, and then Luger has to be turned emergency babyface for WrestleWar 90. 
There are again people say, okay, we've got to put the title on Lex now. Flair says, no, we're going to wait for Sting. <laughs> and so Lex is like totally screwed at this point. And that's a tricky one, whether or not Lex should have won in that situation. I, I think in hindsight, they should have just put somebody else in that spot rather than turning Lex. Yeah. Um, you know, if turning great mood of babyface, I think would have been a wonderful idea. Oh God. Yeah. And, but and Gary Hart was in his ear and wasn't going to let that happen. And, well, and, and he left. Brian, yeah, yeah, well, Brian was the guy that was originally talked about, and it was, uh, well, as you know, it was the other way around. Luke, they had the idea for Luger, and then afterwards, they had the idea for Pillman, which is kind of a little bit too little too late, but there you go. It probably should have been. Yeah, so here in 91, like, look, you've got to make Luger the champion eventually at this point. Like, he really, like, it, what are you going to, I mean, at this point, we talked about Flair Stale, you got to go with Luger as the champion, at this, because Sting hasn't worked, you got to try something new. Luger hasn't been the champion. He really should be uh, the champion in 91, but unfortunately for Lex, uh, his first title win comes under the most auspicious of circumstances. <laughs> but, you know, uh, WCW's not done trying to keep Ric Flair on board. Yeah, so after firing him, <laughs> one week later, after the hideous backlash to this, uh, on July 8th, WCW offered Flair a one-year contract for a figure said by a semi-reliable source uh, to be $750,000 a year. According to several sources, the offer was more of a response by the TBS legal department because there were no grounds for his firing, particularly when the company had attempted to get him to change an existing contract for a new one this year for roughly, for roughly half as much money. Uh, legally, WCW's actions had put TBS in a bad position since Flair had the existing contract. It's worth noting as well, when they say that there was a, and, and this is Liam, not Dave Meltzer's quote here, the reason he says there there's no grounds for his firing, this is hilarious, there was concern that he was going to no-show the Dayton Macon to drop the belt to Barry Windham. But once he kind of alluded to the fact that he may not be there, they fired him before the show actually happened. So he didn't actually no-show. He did you know, The whole idea, well, he broke the contract by not actually appearing on, on his date that he was booked for. They fired him before the date happened. So they didn't actually have flair on anything other than, you know, talk, like, hey, can we figure this out? Can we figure this out? So because there's no actual legal grounds for his firing, uh, and obviously this is all about negotiating the new contract anyway, uh, very much a, a make good here. Make good offer. One year for 750 grand a year. TBS legal yelling, we have heard enough. <laughs> <laughs> that famous side uh, about uh, Jim Hurd, who was, yes, just doing a real bang-up job here uh, <laughs> as WCW executive. Wow, what a... That, that, that's really important. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, that's the reason why he, had the, he really had no grounds to fire him because yeah, he, he didn't. He didn't even bother. Flair didn't no show that date with Barry. I mean, I wonder if he would have been willing to. Do, if they would have given him money, maybe he would have done it. I guess just to do it. But yeah, they didn't even let him do it because they fired him. Yeah, they canned him. We want Flair chants were heard at most of the WCW events this past week with banners regarding the subject at three of the cards. In addition, on Wednesday night, an Atlanta Braves versus Pittsburgh Pirates baseball game. There was a We Want Flair chant from the outfield loud enough that it was acknowledged both on the television and radio broadcasts of the game and also a TBS Bring Back Our Flair banner that was shown on television. Show me the pictures. Oh, yes. I want to see that. Is, <laughs> this past Wednesday, WCW made another last-ditch effort to get Flair back in a meeting with Jack Petrick and Jim Hurd at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Atlanta. Both sides, uh, both sides signed confidentiality agreements not to discuss any of the contents of the meeting. Well, somebody violated that confidentiality agreement, <laughs> it turns out, because and I don't know when this came out, but at that meeting, 
maybe that's what they offered him the $750,000 deal you mentioned earlier, because they do offer him more than he originally asked for. Uh, he meaning Flair. Brilliant. And, negotiating. Yes. And they also offered him the role of Booker and that said that they would fire Dusty Rhodes, shades of 1988 all over again. Or I don't know if fire Dusty Rhodes outright from WCW, but remove Dusty as Booker and give Flair the book again. Um, Rick obviously turns that down. And this all ends, what we've been building to, Ric Flair does not drop the title to anybody and goes to the WWF. Uh, meanwhile, the Great American Bash 91 in Baltimore is headlined by Lex Luger versus Barry Windham for the vacant title. Uh, since Flair took the title, they had to use an old Florida belt mm. as the new title, which is a real sad thing. And Great American Bash 91, as so many know, obviously, we have very sharp listeners on this podcast, uh, widely regarded as the worst pay-per-view of all time. Do you think that still holds true today? There's been some good ones challenging it. Okay, this, but this last few you know, years, but at, at the time it was widely regarded as the worst ever chance of we want flair during the main event. And even worse, they turn Luger heel <laughs> uh, in what was not even the main event of the show. Uh, so here's a bit of a note. Uh, uh, just one little tidbit. Uh, and I'll get to this one first. There's two tidbits. Okay. So a shocking note for you, Liam O'Rourke, about me and the Great American Bash 91. I've been, I've been waiting for this for a while. Okay, okay. I hope this isn't a letdown here. So I'm doing the notes for the show here, and I'm thinking about everything. All of a sudden, light bulb goes off over my head. I'm like, have I ever watched the full 1991 Great American Bash? And I sit there and I say, I don't think I have. And... And I'm like, then I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm certain I haven't. I'm like, I think I've seen clips. I don't think I've, like, watched, Whoa. like, a full match. And I'm thinking about it, and here you go. Okay, you know, at a time, you are younger, I was younger. You know, and you're a few years younger than I am, but you grew up when tape trading was still a reality, right? Yes. Or you bought stuff off eBay. Okay. And, like, everybody knew the Great American Bash 91 was shitty. So I never got it. And, you know, then the WWE Network came out, and I it's, I never thought to put it on. I remember, and I think I told you this, um, when my daughter was born, and I was like, just, sit, you know, when you have a newborn baby, you don't do much. You just kind of sit there and are legally responsible for it. But I didn't have anything to do. I, had, I remember, I'm like, you know, 93 WCW was a big hole in my tape collection. Oh, I'm going to watch right. all that. And I did, so I watched that. But I had never watched the 1991 Great American Bash until this morning. Oh, no way. Yeah, I put it on this morning. And look, a lot of podcasts, including this one, try to like dive into narratives and, you know, say, hey, you know, maybe this was an overreaction. Oh, this wasn't as good as some people think. Oh, this wasn't as bad as some people think, right? Mm -hmm. I am here to tell you right now, 30 years later, the Great American Bash 1991 absolutely blows and is... <laughs> Very much the worst pay-per-view I've probably ever seen. It is depressing. It's a, I mean, the, a stench of death on that show that is just unbearable. The, the performers, when they come out, just have this sad look on their face. Like, God, I don't even want to... This show is bad. Like, everybody, like... Look, I, I mean, I recently, you know, pulled the curtain back, as I like to say. Um, we're recording this May of 2021. So... WrestleMania backlash just took place from yeah. WWE. And that's a show that I felt nothing towards. Okay. Some people liked it more than me. 
Um, I felt nothing toward it. No emotion. But even that was way better than the 1991 Great Red Crash. There were no good matches. The booking was abysmal. And not only do you have this impromptu world title match, which they, I guess they did advertise on at least the weekend before television. They had, they ran a crawler yeah, during they the did. control center and they, they made it clear that Ric Flair wasn't going to be there. But not only do you do this Luger Barry Windham bullshit uh, where Luger turns heel uh, in this like awful heel turn, like Harley race just walks out and it's like <laughs> pile drive him. And that's the heel turn. That's the turn folks. Yeah, and Barry Windham, who's a heel, becomes a babyface off of that. Oh, and by the way, I love Barry's babyface run after that. It should be stated. Love. Mr. He- Mr. Hughes just plucked out of the York Foundation. Another example of what we said earlier on. This yeah. a shit show of a combination. Yeah, Jim Ross is so confused. He's like, uh, Mr. Hughes is the bodyguard or is the security for the York Foundation. I-, I haven't heard anything different. Like, there's just like, nobody knows what's going on. Can you imagine like, if the, G- the-, the Jim Ross of today calls that? <laughs> Folks, uh, how about we get the legal man back in the room? <laughs> is this rock going to start counting? <laughs> is this rock going to start counting anyway? Um, so not only do you do that bullshit, the <laughs> opening match of the night is a scaffold match. And I knew this, but it truly has to be seen to be believed. It's Steve Austin and Terry Taylor against your boy, PN News, <laughs> and Bobby Eaton. The scaffold is dangerously unsafe. It's so thin. It's like, it's like, I wouldn't have wanted to work on there either. So neither, nobody in the match wanted to take the bump. You're supposed to like fall, you know, I mean, everyone's seen the image of Jim Cornette hanging and falling to the ring and blowing out his knee for the rest of his life. Nobody wanted to take that bump. So they changed the rules, did not advertise this, by the way, to capture the flag. (laughs) Yes. It became a, you know, shades of your sixth grade gym class. All you had to do was pass by your opponents and grab the flag behind them. So there was that. I don't think that we can do justice to how much of a symphony of silence there was for that match as it was taking place. It's just nothing's happening. The the guys can barely move. They're crawling on their bellies like snakes along the scaffold because there's nothing you can do. Bobby Eaton was trying. Bless his heart. He tried to do something up there, but there's, there's just nothing that's going to happen. And it ends, and the bell rings, and the crowd just doesn't react, and then we all just kind of move on with our lives. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's sort of how, like, every match goes. Yeah. Now you have the, the main event of this show. What a clusterfuck this was. <laughs> oh, with Dick Murdoch dropping Missy High on the head so he can take a pop at a ringsider. That shocked me. <laughs> that shocked me. I did not know that. So... We'll get to that in a moment, but the main event was supposed to be a mixed tag. Rick Steiner and Missy Hyatt. Missy Hyatt was getting a lot of TV time around this period Mm -hmm. Uh, because Scott was injured against Paul E. and Arn Anderson. The Missy Hyatt-Paul E. thing had been going on on TV for a while. Well, this is another piece of false advertising. Baltimore did not allow the State Athletic Commission, uh, which is such a – uh, checkered history with Great American Bashes, <laughs> uh, uh, with, with no blood and whatnot, and what happened at '88, the fuck finish there. But here, they apparently had a rule that said a woman could not wrestle a man. <laughs> so this wasn't a, actually. I, 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 I should clarify. This was not a mixed tag. It was intergender because yes. it was Arn and Paulie against Rick. You know, Paulie's very much a man. Uh, Missy Hyatt's very much a woman on that side. So at the start of the match. 
They have the hardliners, Dick Murdoch and Dick Slater, just kidnap Missy Hyatt and take her away. And yes, as you mentioned, a ringside fan, I don't know if he started pulling on Missy to try to get her out of the clutches of Dick Murdoch or what happened there, but he drops her and takes a swing at the fan. <laughs> a hard swing. He's going for it. Dirty Dick Murdoch, man. <laughs> Uh, and the hardliners didn't last too long after this. No, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it had anything to do with that or not. But the three key matches were all changed the week before the show. And this was not like the era of social media. This no. was 1991. I mean, this sh- and then every other undercard match just reeks. This pay-per-view just eats ass. <laughs> I just think it needs to be stated for the record. I, I, I don't think enough people... Rip on the Great American Bash 91 anymore. I'm here to tell you, I finally watched it on May 20th, 2021, and it is even shittier than advertised. The only time I cared um, was Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson in the Rock and Roll Express Explosion, oh, yeah. which is like, you, Morton, you could tell, wanted no part of the York Foundation gimmick. But at least they yeah. start off the match with a fun brawl, but then they just, like, kill the crowd with this uh, limb work. Yeah, and, I mean, at, at, at that point, the show has no hope. No, and 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 you, you can tell how much he's into the York Foundation for the fact he didn't even change his fucking gear <laughs> the entire no. time he's in there. He just looks it, like it, the same old Ricky Morton. Yeah, it never did. I, no. I the entire term, he never. I think maybe he came out in a suit once. Oh, that's nice. Maybe for like an interview. And yes, as Richard Morton. Yes, everyone changed their uh, fancier name for the York Foundation: Thomas Rich, Terrence Taylor. Uh, but uh, no one got over, no matter what they changed. <laughs> no, 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 unfortunately not. Another shocking moment from The Bash, which would have been, it's edited on the network, so if it's the first time you saw the show, is uh, Brian Pillman as the yellow dog in the match with Johnny B. Bad. Johnny B. Bad, by the way, was a winner of a character. <laughs> I love Johnny B. Bad. Yellow dog Pillman. Jim Ross, by the way, says, oh, we were having a conversation earlier. Oh, not that kind of conversation. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Jim. Yes. But uh, on the subject of, 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 of kind of... Uh, Gay fear, I suppose, is Brian Pillman <laughs> just walking straight up to the camera and saying, clear as day, I don't know about Johnny B. Bad, more like Johnny B. Gay. <laughs> Loudly. And just, oh, they edited that off the network in a hurry. <laughs> Excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> ain't, ain't pretty. Johnny B. Gay? <laughs> And this was under the yellow... Well, no, no, wait a minute. That was not Brian Pillman. That was the yellow dog. That's true. We never actually found out the identity of the yellow dog, so... Did they ever pay that storyline off? No, well, no. They just basically said, Brian, you know, the light heavyweight division's back. Brian Pillman's been reinstated. Okay. And <laughs> did they it. ever... Speaking of mass gimmicks that I don't think went anywhere, did they ever reveal that Bad Street was Brad Armstrong? I think so. Okay, because it was like... The interesting part of that was... Um, Boy, are we getting off topic. But anyway, the Young Pistols had Steve Armstrong, Brad's brother. And it was, so it was kind of interesting with the Freebirds, their tag team uh, partner, yeah. the mask guy was Brad. But I don't think they ever paid that off at all. Um, your boy, Eric Bischoff, by the way, this was his debut with WCW. A sterling debut. What, what, what a way to start the career in WCW. And do you remember his interview segment in Missy Hyatt's locker room? Here, Eric got a chance to go into Missy's locker room. I do make, remember was, this now. And he was hamming it up. He's like, oh, I just love this job with, like, that fake plastic smile of his <laughs> and whatever. And so he's peeking. And, and, like, it's very clear that she's in the shower. 
missing yeah. my head at the time. Well, before he gets to the shower, he's grinning like a goof. Missy's like attendant who's just chilling at the door. <laughs> like, she's like, oh, I got this letter. And it was from Jason Hervey saying how much he loves Missy and to have a good, great match tonight. Oh, and good Eric's like, oh, isn't that so sweet? And then he proceeds to go in and be a peeping Tom. <laughs> like, like, like he's like looking for it. He's like, oh, I just like, that's when he starts talking about how he loves this job after like Jason Hervey, who's his buddy in real life. Um, <laughs> he's, like, yeah. he's like, okay, that was so sweet with Jason just wrote Missy. Now I'm going to go in our locker room and spy out our shower. You know, I, I, I know that it's like time wise, it doesn't work out, but God damn, I would have loved it if, if Stan Hansen came out of the shower. Yeah. Just, just, standing there. Yeah. Just beat the hell out of it. And by the way, this would be Missy Hyatt who sued Eric Bischoff for sexual uh, harassment <laughs> later on. Perfect tie in. Absolutely perfect. Couldn't okay, so uh, WCW, believe it or not, despite everything we've said here, does not die <laughs> uh, after the Great American Bash. Watching that show, you feel like it was going to, but it somehow lived on and actually became very profitable, ironically, on, under Eric Bischoff. It but, did. Uh, uh, Ric Flair, uh, where does he go? Well, at the beginning of August... Meltzer says there are going to be several firsts on this weekend's WWF syndicated television shows dealing with the introduction of Ric Flair. According to Vince McMahon, voiceovers were done Monday afternoon for the shows, with Flair's name mentioned on both Superstars of Wrestling and Wrestling Challenge shows that air this weekend as World Heavyweight Champion. Uh, the initials NWA and WCW will never be acknowledged for obvious reasons, he says. Flair's world title belt, but not Flair, will be shown in a vignette with Bobby Heenan on both shows. McMahon must be extremely confident that he can cut the deal with Flair on or shortly after September September 1st, when Flair's WCW contract expires, although actual contract negotiations won't even start until that date for legal reasons. The speculation is that Flair and Hogan would work a major house show run in the fall, rather than hold off the inevitable match until WrestleMania next year. So that's, mm. that, that's right away, right away. Yeah, so the discussion of making Hogan and Flair a house show run is going to be a big part four talking point. Yes. It will be the dominant uh, part, well, maybe not the dominant, but certainly one of the dominant part four talking points. Your initial thought on that. I mean, put yourself in 1991 shoes for a minute and you read that in 1991. What's your re reaction to them working a house show instead of doing WrestleMania possibly? Feels like a misread almost immediately to me. Um, it just, it feels like plugging flair into the Hogan blueprint. And not just the Hogan blueprint, the Bruno blueprint, the, the one that we always talk about. The, you know, the, the, the heel comes in, works the house show program, does three loops, and, and off we go. And it feels like that's kind of missing the point of the match right away. When you hear that, like, oh, it's Hogan and Flair, and it's going to happen straight away in your local arena. Granted, this is coming after about a year or so. We've been talking about having really bad houses, so maybe they thought this was the thing to jumpstart them. So mm -hmm. that, that, that's kind of, you know, weighing on my mind as I'm trying to, you know, put myself in 91 shoes. There was far more money in, in the houses then than I guess that you know, relative you know, in the overall percentage of things. But to me, it's a pay per view match, and it always is. Yeah, and we're gonna really, really, uh, you know, kind of focus in on that. I think in part four, like I said, I've I've got a lot to say. Yeah. Um, far too much for you know we've got a lot left to talk about. Oh, by the way, there was an entire SummerSlam undercard. <laughs> uh, but and speaking of which, too bad for that September first date. Yeah, um, because otherwise they could have had Flair debut at SummerSlam at MSG. Remember the rumors of him doing that at the first SummerSlam in '88 at the, MSG, no less, the, for the, the Brother, Brother Love, Love Show. Show. Yeah. So, um, 
What was the deal there? Was it just because Crockett was going under that Flair, like, thought maybe he could get out of his deal and go? Like, how yeah. did that work? Okay. I, I, I believe that's the case. They, 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 you know, Crockett was in trouble. They were, there was, there was, there was concern. And, and I guess Flair was just basically looking for a life raft off. I don't know if he could have legally done it as part of the, the transition because, you know, a, a big part of the reason why the company went to Turner was because Flair was under contract. So they probably wouldn't let him go. Yeah. Well, they didn't. So there you go. And again, we instead we get a uh, Jim Duggan segment on Summer Slam 88 with Brother Love, which was not good. <laughs> Utterly pointless. Yes. Uh, Meltzer says, indeed, in speaking with many different people in both offices, most feel the best way to go about a potential Hogan-Flair match is to portray Flair as not being a WWF wrestler, but being an outsider, and that the WWF doesn't want the match, but that both men individually do want it, and it's presented as a one-time deal. If Flair is in the WWF for one year, he'll be considered just another WWF wrestler by that time, and whatever list that Hogan Flair may have had will be gone long before the match ever takes place. Okay, so to what you said earlier, and to what I'm thinking moving forward, Meltzer says uh, it's WWF doesn't want the match, but both men want it individually, and it's presented as a one-time deal. That speaks to it as a pay-per-view attraction. So right there... That's kind of flies in the face of doing the house show. Um, so I think we're in agreement here. Again, we will have a very long form discussion on this. Um, Liam and I were talking before the show how we're going to approach the fall of 91 and WWF. And, um, yeah, the fact that they work the house shows and not a pay-per-view, they never do a pay-per-view, uh, will be a main talking point there. Absolutely. Uh, now, as things play out, Heenan does bring the belt on TV. Uh, for Seattle, sort of wrestling challenge with uh, Grill Monsoon and the perfectly worthless Jim Nyder on commentary. Uh, and he then obviously ends it with Ric Flair's name. Uh, gets the same promo in a studio which airs elsewhere on other shows in syndication. But yes, this is the, this is the announcement. The, 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 let's compare Hulk Hogan to Ric Flair. And then Gorilla and Neidhart just look at each other like, a, like Sean and Hunter in 97. I kind of liked that reaction. Yeah, like what? They what? did it. They what? sold it. I mean, this was a legit holy shit type moment. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, I mean, I'm not reading the newsletters in the summer '91, so Bobby Heenan pulling that title, I knew who Ric Flair was, and saying Ric Flair's, you know, in, or at least intimating Ric Flair's coming to WWF was huge. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the way they and it was at the end of the show, was it? It not? was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like that, that they didn't really do the syndication stuff like that. A cliffhanger. Yeah. Uh, the famous line, of course, you know, when comparing Flair to Hogan, ice cream to horse manure. Yeah, great line. I, I know they agreed with that in the newsletters. Um, <laughs> so uh, he did also later on uh, said Flair would take on the winner of the Hogan slaughter match from the SummerSlam Spectacular that we had mm. talked about on the last show. Um, so, again, they're building to the idea of Hogan versus Flair, the two champions. Um, obviously, Hogan's not defending the title at SummerSlam, so you've already got this set up. And, my God, you know, we alluded to this last time. How insignificant does Sergeant Slaughter feel going into that main <laughs> event? Because, you know, you have the Jake and Undertaker thing with Warrior, and now you got Ric Flair waiting on the horizon. Yeah, Savage is back, Sid's in. <laughs> yeah, it's just like Sergeant Slaughter's like the seventh most important thing in the company. So, uh, yeah, real sad stuff. So, um, with Neidhart still being there, I love, and by love, I don't know if I really mean love, but it's funny how they get him <laughs> off that commentary team. He just, like, doesn't appear one week, and they're like, yeah, he's sick of Bobby Heenan. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's it. Yeah, and, he, and he goes to, you know, be a singles guy for a while, and then it's, uh, 
Is it the new foundation? It after sounds that? the new foundation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that's why. Yeah, people forget that Jim Neidhart working with Gorilla and Bobby in the summer of '91, the definition of a third wheel. <laughs> Indeed. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. So obviously, Flair is not at SummerSlam, even though his name is ringing. We do get the segment where Bobby Heenan uh, goes to talk to Hulk Hogan at his locker room, carrying the belt, uh, and probably gets the door in the face treatment. Your thoughts on that segment? Too much of trying to downplay Flair as a threat early. I didn't like it. Feels like the, the real life. Yeah, I, 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 you know, this gets worse. But I don't like the idea of everybody just dismissing it as worthless. The title, you mean? Yes. Or, or like, just the name Ric Flair, or the thought of Ric Flair coming to WWF. It's like the, the whole reason you brought him in is because Ric Flair, the other champion, the, this is the ultimate. This is the top guy in the competing promotion jumping ship seven years after the beginning of the national expansion. We'd seen the drip feed of Dusty Road Warriors Sid, but this is the big one. This is the one that everybody's been, oh my God, Ric Flair in the WWF. You finally get him there. Everybody's eager to see what the hell's going to happen. And you just promote, you, you push it like the promotion is like, they don't even want to deal with it. <laughs> it's just like, this is like a pest. Yeah, it was kind of just played for laughs so Gorilla yeah. and Roddy could laugh at Heenan. Yeah, if it, like Hogan isn't even in the segment. It's just like a door gets slammed yeah. on Bobby's face. Like, you know, it's allegedly he's talking to Hogan, but yeah, you never even see Hogan. So, yeah, I think you could say it's a sign of things to come with Flair and Flair's title not being uh, presented seriously enough. Uh, after SummerSlam, there's a funeral parlor segment where Roddy Piper confronts Heenan. Yes. And he spits on the title. What did you think of that? Throws it down. I actually thought that could have been a great angle to lead to a bigger deal, a bigger angle coming up, is that someone disrespects the belt. That seems like, actually, that's... I don't think that's as bad, because no. that's like... that. that to me, something, somebody should have... And it maybe should have been Hogan, but somebody should have done that. Because to me, that's that's like, God damn, he spat on the belt, like... That's, that's that's part of the you know, this part of Flair's identity, you know. That's that's the that's to me that's 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 a money angle. I scare Flair. That was yeah. a good line for Piper. <laughs> Piper did a good job in that angle. I agree. He did. That was good. He did. So after the buildup of Ric Flair heading to this company, obviously that's coming in September. We do have a pay per view to talk about here, Kyle. Yeah, and we talked about the match made in heaven, the match made in hell in the last part. But believe it or not, there were other matches at SummerSlam, and we are here to talk about them. We are now. Having said that. As we kind of hinted last time with the main event situation, very much echoed in the undercard, a promo-heavy build for this show in the weeks leading up to it. Very few, if any, real angles to build to these undercard matches. Yeah, and that was really exemplified by the Intercontinental title match, certainly a famous one, between Mr. Perfect and Bret Hart. Bret just kind of thrust into that challenger role. Remember, Perfect mm. had been feuding with the Bulldog all summer, and they just announced this match, Mr. Perfect and Bret Hart at SummerSlam. Yeah, and I'm kind of interested in this because this is like, I remember Brett had a theory that Mr. Perfect's title, when he got the belt back from Tornado, that Perfect wouldn't lose the belt to the first guy he worked with, which was Boss Man. And he said he thought it would be the second guy, which ended up being the Bulldog, but they dropped the Bulldog pretty cold. Like, it's just kind of, it's over, and we're moving towards the Bret Hart match. So always look yeah, and, that, a, and that feud sucked. We talked about that a lot. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 there was nothing happening there. So, 
I just find that interesting that at some point, I, I wonder if they had IC title designs for the Bulldog at one point and then just cut bait and said, no, Brett's the guy. Yeah, and now when you talk about the lack of physicality in this feud. Oh, yes. Um, it probably, it, you know, it's true with Perfect and Bulldog, but it was certainly true with Perfect and Brett. Probably has a lot to do with Perfect's back, um, which not only necessitated a title change to take place, and that may be why Brett got the spot over Bulldog. They're like, okay, we have to take the Intercontinental title off. Yeah, who's the, the guy? Of Perfect now. Eh, Bulldog, we're not so sure. Bret Hart, we'll go with him. So that may be why Brett was just kind of thrust into the situation. So Perfect's back not only explains that, but it also could explain the uh, following two squash matches uh, that we found. Yeah, so Mr. Perfect does the weirdest squash match. Obviously, we know why. With a guy called Mike Daniels, where he does, like, absolutely nothing. It's like he gets, you know, the match starts, he chops him, he throws him out the ring, he throws two chops on the floor, gets back in, counts out victory in, like, less than 30 seconds. So when you see that, it's like he must have been real bad. And and, and there's another one, obviously, that, that airs after SummerSlam that's pretty much identical. Yeah. Um, so Perfect he wrestles a guy, Mark Thomas. Uh, he beats him in the 17-second mark with a rollover. Not yeah. the Perfect Flex, a rollover. Uh, in an untelevised incident prior to that bout, Bret Hart stole the IC title from Perfect so that Perfect would appear without the belt because the match would be airing after perfect, spoiler alert, loss of the IC title. But it was taped before SummerSlam. It aired the weekend after. Yeah, so I watch. It's real odd. Like, once you know that happened, you can see how it is. Because, like, Perfect's, like, rushing to the ring. He runs to the ring, which is yeah, weird. Yeah, no very coach. uncharacteristic to start. Yeah, no coach. The coach is gone. Uh, the coach, yes, we'll be talking about him uh, momentarily. And, yeah, just with a roll-up. So, um Perfect's back was not doing well here. So, um, you know, kudos to him, obviously, uh, for not just doing the match with Brett at SummerSlam, but it being so excellent. Indeed. Uh, and we'll talk about it in a second. But the, the only thing close to an angle that you get is the coach scouting Bret Hart during a match with a Barbarian. Um, yeah, I don't know if it- it, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know if there's much to write about. But- well, obviously, he didn't take good enough notes. <laughs> Because Brett wins in the SummerSlam. I, I uh, all the pro- I wrote that. I'm so glad you caught that. I wrote that to every single fucking promo in the SummerSlam. Yeah, not in not at SummerSlam. Brett loved to always call it the SummerSlam. <laughs> so yeah, and that Brett Barbarian match takes place uh, at that SummerSlam spectacular on the USA Network. Uh, we've referenced a couple times here. It's not a bad match. Yeah, I, I don't really know what the coach was looking for exactly. Maybe looking for reasons to have Barbarian to the list of 100 wrestlers better than Triple H or whatever that, that fucking thing was that we talked about before. But Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think that you saw many reasons here. Brett, clearly, of the, the mid-card crop, is the cream of the crop. When you look at his reactions and stuff, he, he feels like the guy. Yes, and, um, you know, let's just talk about the match, I guess, now. Uh, he wins his first singles title. Uh, it's a match of the year candidate. I don't think it's better than Warrior Savage, though. Push back on me if you want. No, I, th- I think in terms of uh, pre-match and post-match, I think the spectacle of Warrior Savage as well as the match. I mean, action-wise, you could probably give the nod to Bretton Perfect pretty comfortably, but uh, not not by a massive distance. And again, the, the pre- and post-match kind of tip Warrior and Savage over. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of speaks to what you look for. Mm. Not you personally. I'm saying you as a general wrestling fan, which of these you prefer? 
right? Like, I think, you know, and you're uniquely suited, I think, to uh, absorb this and respond. You're probably not res- uh, shocked that I would slightly prefer Warrior Savage and that, like, Meltzer would prefer Brett Perfect. No, nah, it doesn't right. I mean, that, that, that's like in line. And, and for the record, I think it's close. I, I think, you know, Brett and Perfect, it's a four and a half star match. Um, and, and that the match, you kind of touched on this, and it really needs to be said. The re- That match having so much heat mm-hmm. is really a testament to how over Brett was at the time, given the lack of angles. Yep, because, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, they made the right choice with, you know, hey, if you know, I don't know if they wanted to take the title off Perfect at this point you know, whether he was hurt or not, but they're put in a situation and they chose correctly. And again, perfect deserves a ton of credit with working uh, with such a bad back and mm. the match being as awesome as it is. Far, far more heroic than Sean's dubious Mania 14 uh, bad back effort, which I suspect. Oh, yeah, this was a, definitely a better match uh, than Austin Michaels. Although it didn't mean as much, I guess, uh, big term, not I guess, mm. it did mean as much big term. But yeah, this is a great one. Um, Let's get a little dirty. What? I was just in the next note that you wrote down. (laughs) Oh, oh yeah. You don't think I'm letting that slip, do you? Um, Okay, let's mention that first. I thought you said it. Uh, Stu Hart gets, I guess, a post-match interview after his son wins his first singles title. But your boy, Lord (laughs) Al Hayes, your countryman, asks him a question Stu starts mumbling something, <laughs> and Lord Al just pulls the mic away and just kicks it back to the announcers. <laughs> well, there you have it. <laughs> Fucking hell, Al. Give him, give him Stu, what do you think time. of your son winning the Intercontinental title? Brett's celebrating with him. Ugh. Okay, back to you guys. <laughs> what hell of a post-match interview with Stu Hart, Lord Al. <laughs> Thanks for the insight, Al. Yeah. Uh, so, Fucking useless individual Al Hayes is. <laughs> I love your age. A disgrace to the flag. I know. I know. Hey, by the way, I, I've got to be the only American, or should I say Yank, that sent you a message saying, go Anthony Agogo. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I'm the only one, right? Okay. Um, let's get a little nerdy with the star ratings here and, and ranking matches, if, if you will allow me. Perfect breath. Match of the year in 1991, would you agree it's the All Japan Six Man from 420? Yes. Okay, I agree. Okay. Uh, War Games is better, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Ooh. 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 It's closer for me. Okay. It's closer. If, 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 it's, if it is, it's by a nose because I don't like the finish as much to the War Games match. I don't either. You know, it's funny. Meltzer gives both 91 and 92 war games five stars. I don't agree with that at all. I think 92 is definitely better. Yeah, I think I, I actually I like 87. Two. I like 87 better than 91. Hmm. Yeah, so that's, a, that's a, I think that's a decent argument. Uh, just the crowd. I mean, that yeah. crowd. I mean, that crowd. I mean, they they must have run out of hot dogs at the hot dog stand and just started giving that crowd cocaine in the Omni in 87, <laughs> man. Because that crowd is fucking hot. Oh yeah. Um, 91 does have the best opening five minutes of any war game. It so does. Windham and Barry. That's uh, sorry, Windham and Barry. Windham and Pillman. Yeah. Um. Okay. So I I think it's it, 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 okay. Maybe they're cool close. What match is better? Perfect Brett or Steiner's versus Sting and Luger? Perfect Brett. Oh. Okay. I um, love I love the energy of the tag match, but I think 
again, the finish. I don't hate the finish, the idea of Sting saving Lex to get clotheslined and, and pinned by Nikita with a change. Uh, but I feel in terms of this one made Brett. Brett became a star far beyond what he was, and he was already over. He became, he felt like he became a player in this match. And I don't think that the, uh, the other tag did the same. Yeah, more historically significant for sure. Yeah, right, yeah. Here, here's a match uh, that has not happened yet, but uh, certainly has, <laughs> and we have 30 years to reflect on it almost. What about the Clash 17 tag when Steamboat comes back? Oh, the enforcers. Against the enforcers. oh What's the better match? That or the perfect Brett? Ah, oh, Christ. Hey, this is the thing. Like that, the, the, the bonus points that it gets for the platform that it's on. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people are probably going to answer Brett and perfect to that match. Ah, uh, I love them both. I love them, but that's really hard to choose because they're they're different and they're looking to accomplish different things. Again, crowd heat's fucking so great for that steamboat return. Man, I was watching that like about five weeks ago. That's such a great match. Yeah, I think so steamboat. Yeah, yeah, they start calling time out frantically. Um, yeah, it, it's great. So I think there was a lot more high-end wrestling in 1991, certainly compared to 1990. And the oh, WWF God. even having two matches. Um, in terms of a WWF match, you know, Meltzer said that Bretton Perfect was the best match since Savage Steamboat. I think a lot of people would agree. Again, I kind of like Warrior Savage a little bit better than Bretton Perfect. Uh, by a hair. Like, if I'm rating them, I give Brett Perfect four and a half, Warrior Savage four and three quarters. But um, certainly, Brett and Perfect is better than any match in 90 for WWF, any match in 89, any match in 88. So, yeah, it was, it was it's real good. It's real freaking good, man. We should get out some notes here because Coach is done. <laughs> uh, I wonder if that job with the Bears is still available. And, and I use that in air quotes, job with the Bears. <laughs> <laughs> He had turned down the Chicago Bears to ma- manage Mr. Perfect. Well, how'd that work out? <laughs> Poor career choice from Tolos. Yeah, I I love, by the way, at the start of the Brett Perfect match at SummerSlam, uh, Roddy Piper goes, you know, he's kind of hyping up the match. He goes, and then we have the coach. <laughs> so you could tell they were really getting ready to write him off. <laughs> he said it in the most, like, demeaning term. Yeah, and then we have the coach. Well, it's that thing, too, of, like, you know, being a fan who, and there's probably a lot of people that kind of mirror my experience with this show, where I'm watching this on the tape, the uh, Silver Vision release, and I'm just thinking, who the fuck is this guy? Where did he come from, and where did he go? Because he's not around long, and if you're not watching the TV this time, he's just gone. It's like, why the fuck is this guy around? I mean, it's what, like two, three sets of TV tapings? And it's, yeah. I mean, he basically was just to give Perfect a manager when Heenan wanted to hang it up. He would never have been hired had Bobby Heenan not wanted to get off the road. And, and clearly they were not pleased with his work because the genius comes in and replaces him. Well, and yet obviously he does not replace Perfect because Perfect no, uh, no. is out for a while. But the genius does manage the Beverly Brothers. And we turn... To the pages of the World Wrestling Federation magazine. <laughs> this is always a highlight. A highlight of these podcasts. Yes, November 91, Bret Hart uh, on the cover with his newly won Intercontinental title. And the Newsbreakers column has the following. For the last 10 months, the genius has spent time away from the WWF. According to some, he has dedicated most of his time to learning different theories about fraternal relationships. In order to be in, that's what it says. I'm just reading. In order to be enlightened on this subject, he has attended some of the world's most prestigious universities, such as Cambridge, uh, the Sorbonne, 
and Yale. As soon as he concluded his studies, the genius decided it was time to return to the WWF. Prior to his reemergence, the genius evaluated the field of talent and found a pair of athletes who were in need of his intellectual assistance. Those wrestlers <laughs> were the Beverly Brothers, Bo and Blake. <laughs> I don't know that anybody's done so much work to get qualified for such a shit job. I mean, are you kidding me? The Bevs. Ah, uh, sorry, genius. You interviewed Lanny Poffo once. I did, and he did not mention anything about his uh, different theories on fraternal relationships. Hmm. Or being in Cambridge, for that matter. <laughs> yes, or Yale, yes. How about both sides of the pond covered uh, in the Newsbreakers column in WWF Magazine. How appropriate for this show. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and uh, I guess one last note here. And Mr. Perfect does not wrestle again until Survivor Series 92. I was there. Mm-hmm. She were in Cleveland, that yes. show. Uh, suburban Cleveland, for that uh, matter. Which, I, actually live clo- I actually live closer to the arena that the show is at now. Um, you know, I'm kind of like halfway between downtown and where that arena was, um, where, where I cur- my current home is. But anyway, um, he becomes Flair's executive consultant in the interim. Uh, kind of interesting. Meltzer, in his notes, was like, oh, you know, he might be out for a few weeks or months, but he'll be back. And then that turned to... Uh, his back's really bad. Don't expect to mention anytime soon. And then he gets the flare gig. So it, obviously that was a situation, you know, because they wanted Heenan to be his manager, obviously, flares. And yeah. so I, I think that was kind of a fluid situation, getting perfect in that role, but him being injured but still under contract, I guess it kind of fit nicely. But maybe taking uh, notes from the genius because uh, and going to this side of the pond because I believe Lloyd's of London was getting a phone call from this, uh, this from Mr. Perfect at this time. Yeah, so that, that, that should be pointed out that Lloyd's of London had a lot to do with uh, Perfect's um, status uh, within the company at that point. Um, where do we think Perfect should be ranked among the greatest intercontinental champions? There was a tweet uh, that I saw uh, in the last couple weeks from Jimmy's Seafood, which I don't know if you're familiar with. That's, uh, they're the ones who always sponsor the Conrad shows, or they like host when they come to Baltimore, I think. And they're like, Mr. Perfect, if you don't agree that he's the number one intercontinental champion of all time, like you're wrong. Or So it was very <laughs> confrontational. Well, then I guess I have to say, Fuck off, Jimmy Seafood, because Randy Savage is the number one Intercontinental Champion of all time. You goddamn betcha, Randy. <laughs> Intercontinental Champion of all time. Um, I actually think, too, uh, this may not be a common thing. I think The Rock was a better Intercontinental Champion than Mr. Perfect. Why are you stealing things that aren't oh, notes? Okay. Was Randy Orton in 2003 a better Intercontinental Champion than Mr. Perfect? He was up there. I'd say he's up there. Shorter. Shorter, but and, and and probably the most prominent thing he did was the, obviously the Foley feud, yeah, during, which during the rain. So, yeah, I'd say it was a pretty damn great. The thing with Perfect is Perfect Perfect held it for a while during a time when a lot of folks became fans. So, and he is one of the people that you first think of when you think of the belt. But when you actually look at the rain, it's like it doesn't. Re- it's not like if you're if you're considering Perfect a great kind of champion, you're looking at a different metric than when you look at The Rock or you're looking at an Orton or you're looking at a Savage because Perfect didn't really. I mean, he held the belt. And that was pretty, yeah, and he held during the, you know, the boss man feud and stuff like that, but there's not really a ton of, you know, title defenses that were like all time great. I mean, honestly, if, you know, the, the, the Brett match kind of cements it. Yeah. Um, as far as like great matches from the entire, like if you could, like, you know, if you look before the tornado loss and then 
you know, if you just, just look at like the whole, I mean, Tornado just basically has a cup of coffee with it, right? Yeah. If you just look, if you kind of combine the two runs that Perfect has with it into one, because he, he's basically the Intercontinental Champion for like 15 months, right? And it was a, pardon the pun, a perfect spot for him. We talked about it, managed yeah, by it Bobby Heenan. You know, it was, it was absolutely the best role for Mr. Perfect. Um, but it was, it was interesting when you compare him to those other guys in that he was coming off a run with Hogan that didn't go well and didn't draw. Mm-hmm. Whereas those other IC champs we mentioned were all ascendant, right? And they were all on their yes. way to winning the world title. Uh, Savage, uh, Rock, Orton. Orton, yeah. Yeah, perfect. I mean, I don't know what the plan would have been had he not gotten hurt, but it certainly wasn't the world title. And that should be, I mean, again, he's an easy top 10 intercontinental champion. Maybe Definitely. he's in top five. Um, but I, I thought, you know, when I saw that tweet, I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit. I do not think Mr. Perfect is the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. Randy, uh, th- there's a lot of things I don't really think are worth fighting for when discussing wrestling, but Randy yeah. Savage is the greatest intercontinental champion. And I'll fight for that. The only other good match that Perfect has. Santana? Oh shit. The, there's two. There's of course, there's the Santana one that we raved about on Saturday's main event, but uh, a diamond in the rough. Shawn Michaels, a name that we oh, have not yes. mentioned that much. Uh, it's on a Coliseum home video uh, from early 91 because Bossman, like, interferes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean does an insane dive where he lands yeah, on the, at the start of the match. Um, so, yeah, I forgot. Santana is good. That Michaels match, and then obviously the loss to Brett uh, is really good. But, um, yeah. And, a great reign. We're not trying, I'm not trying to denigrate perfect here. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Why, why am I sounding so negative about this? I don't know. I was in a mood when I put this note together. <laughs> I he, he's, he's a definitely a top ten maybe even top five intercontinental champion and um, kind of a changing of an era, you know, warrior and perfect. Two of the top guys, the last, you know, year and a half, both, uh, you know, done after SummerSlam 91 uh, in ring. Both uh, changing of the guard. And it wasn't even the only changing of a belt at SummerSlam because the Virgil DiBiase feud, which ends, well, it doesn't end, end at SummerSlam, but we're on the, the, the road to probably the biggest match of the bunch here. Uh, for the Virgil DBRC feud, the million dollar belts on the line. Again, like once the Virgilina stuff <laughs> is over with, which we talked about previously, there's really not a whole lot to the feud. DBRC has a masked guy on television, which is Barry Darso, uh, fighting Virgil on the SummerSlam Spectacular. Virgil wins with a real shit finish of Darso going for a knee drop. And Virgil, like, I guess holding his fist up in the air and punching him in the face as he's on his way down and gravity does the work for him. Um, but, of course, you know, Darso's back is to the hard camera when this spot happens, so it just looks like he just drops down and just knocks himself out cold on thin air. No Anthony Agogo. No! This was, this was not the great finish of Dynamite uh, with, with uh, Billy Gunn's son eating it. But yeah. uh, Virgil's appearance on the barbershop, i got to mention here, though, before we get to the match itself, because that was poor. That was poor. <laughs> Talking about how at SummerSlam, I'll enter as Virgil and I'll leave a rich... Rich, rich, man. <laughs> was that worse than Virgilita, in your opinion? Uh, it was, yeah, I think it was. He talks about yeah, the, the, the gist of, because at least Piper was there to ham it up and make it funny. Yeah. But this was just like, he's actually like trying to do like the big money promo. Not literally, even though he's talking about how he's going to be a millionaire overnight when he wins. But uh, this is like Virgil. I, I, can, I can see Vince watching this and thinking, all right, we're going to pay this off at SummerSlam. But after that, this guy's fucking done. <laughs> You know, you talk about shitty finishes involving Virgil, and I got to tell this story about a pay-per-view I just watched, a Great American Bash. Um, not coincidentally enough, it was 97. When was the last time you watched that show? 
Oh, God, years ago. Years okay, ago. I, I decided when, like, all the WCW footage got uploaded to the cock, you know, unfortunately we're stuck <laughs> with that over here in the United States of America. We've got uh, the Peacock Network. I was like, I'm just going to watch a random WCW show. I think it was a palate cleanser. I think I was pissed at WWE again at the time. So I'm like, I don't think I've watched Great American Match 97 since the night it aired. I'll throw this on. So there's a Steiner's Harlem Heat match, okay? Trust me, I'm getting there. Liam, okay. We're here. Okay. And it, it goes a while. The crowd's pretty hot for the match. And the finish sees Vincent, a.k.a. Virgil, just run in out of nowhere and drop an elbow on Scott Steiner for a disqual. Oh, no, he drops an elbow on one of the guys from Harlem Heat to get the Steiners disqualified. Okay. This is like 16 minutes in he does this, by the way. And oh. it's because the match was for the number one contender, and the story was the Outsiders didn't want the Steiners to be the number one contender. Kind of humorous, but not a finish you should be doing uh, after 16 minutes on pay-per-view, right? Okay, so I'm like, what a dog shit finish that was. Well, then Virgil, a.k.a. Vincent, rolls to the outside and totally makes up for it by doing the black power salute to Harlem Heat. (laughs) (laughs) And I lost it. I'm watching this late at night. I just start dying. I'm like, unbelievable. This was not exactly the, uh, what, 68 Olympics? This exchange <laughs> did not have that meeting. <laughs> oh, that's tremendous. I don't remember that at all. Yeah, I, I didn't either. I was like, because, you know, you're just, you, you're, you're, your immediate reaction is to be so mad at that finish. And, um, but yeah, the, the whole the whole salute is, is just incredible. Ah, <laughs> oh, great stuff. I, I wonder what that story was going to be. Yes. Oh, uh, speaking man. of incredible, we should talk about Virgil winning the our belt at SummerSlam because it's his career peak and not a bad match. No, not a bad match at all. And again, the crowd is fucking red hot for this. Yeah. Uh, Piper was great on commentary. Bobby Heenan, slightly racist. Uh, would he yeah. Canceled in 2021. I don't <laughs> think he could tell a lot of those jokes. Um, so, yeah, but it's a really good match, and it is definitely the highlight of Virgil's in-ring career. A very good match. Uh, Sherry, uh, as she always uh was known to do was tremendous in her role. Um, they did like that finish where it was like a DQ, but then they restarted the match mm-hmm. and Sherry out. Uh, yeah. Hot crowd it was kind of the story of the night at SummerSlam 91. It was tremendous stuff. And, and it is, you know, regardless of his promo skills, it is interesting. Like once the story's told that he's won and he's taken the belt from DBRC, like where do you go over there with Virgil? Because he's so tied to DBRC that once he's overcome him, it's like, that's all folks. And he yeah. really doesn't do anything after this. He just loses the belt back and then, like, goes on to be yeah. with a repo man, I think. <laughs> yeah, it basically becomes a jobber to the stars. Yeah. You're right, because, you know, it's funny how they got so much mileage out of a character like Kane. Yeah. Who's, like, so tied to, you know, an existing character, The Undertaker, that, like, you know, he went on to have, like, this 20-year career, whereas, like, Virgil, he's so tied to an existing character, T.D. and he never really got away. And, you know, I mean, it's not like <laughs> he, sh- he should have been expected to. He wasn't very good. So. No, no. But God bless them at SummerSlam 91. Yeah. <laughs> Bash 97, for that matter. Yes. Um, <laughs> more title changes on the show. The Legion of Doom beat the Nasties to win the tag belts. Again, barely anything to build this matchup. There's like a match on there. The SummerSlam Spectacular we mentioned a one-on-one and like a, pre- a rather useless appearance on the funeral parlor for LOD. But that's about it. 
yeah, Hawk beats Brian Nobbs at the mm-hmm. SummerSlam. That's the Spectacular, one. Spectacular, uh, a match that is as, every bit as good as it reads. Uh, <laughs> the third title change on this pay-per-view, including the million-dollar title and IC, uh, the Legion of Doom become the first and only tag team in history to win the WWF, uh, NWA slash WCW, and AWA belts, which was a very big deal at the time. Uh, something Jim Ross would mention on commentary uh, when LOD came back to the promotion mm. in 97. Interesting, uh, as I was thinking about this, the Nasty Boys could have later matched LOD with that distinction, but they never won the AWA titles. No, they didn't. No, and I'm sure they really didn't care. And by the time they were <laughs> in the AWA, those titles were freaking worthless. Um, <laughs> LOD, oh, first of all, i got to ask you this question before we talk about what LOD's on to next. Is this the weakest no-DQ count-out match in the history of professional wrestling? Ooh. From a WF PV perspective, probably. I'm sure there's some hardcore matches out there that, that, have, that, have, that have stuck well, to join I, out. I just, I, I just mean in terms of the stip, not like in terms of, like, I mean, it's not a good match. In terms like, of living to the stip, I think there's like a tray of drinks that gets used once, and that might be it. Yeah, and they're like, people are like, oh, God, like, you know, the announcers are kind of so like, you know, Buckle up your seatbelts. You know, I mean, this is going to be a wild one, and it is just <laughs> the least wild brawling match you've ever seen. I mean, nothing like the Nasty Boys would do against Cactus and Friends in WCW. Oh, years later. great stuff. Yeah. Um, so LOD feuds with the Natural Disasters, uh, who went over the Bushwhackers at this show. And there is an incredible Bobby Heenan line of that match. Uh, that we should mention, that we can't mention his uh, comments from the, or shouldn't mention even for that matter, his comments from the Virgil match. But uh, Piper and Heenan are at each other's throat, obviously, this whole show on commentary. And Piper kind of throws Heenan a softball at one point. He's like, all right, Bobby, if you're managing the Bushwhackers, what would you do? <laughs> and Bobby, he goes, the first thing I would do if I was managing the Bushwhackers is commit suicide. <laughs> Gets me every time. That line, it's so great. So yeah, and natural. Um, it's just it's so quick. It feels like it's scripted, but you know it's not. No, Bobby's just that good. But LOD natural disasters. Oh boy, we've been talking about this tag division all ninety one, and it's it that keeps sucks. getting worse. Yeah, it's aw- awful feud. Awful, awful feud. The the disasters as heels. I just hate this team. The fact they put them with the bushwhackers to try and get them over. It's just I don't know what you know. You think they were going with this LOD natural disaster spirit? It's like, okay, no one buys the LOD is going to lose, so we're just going to put them up against like a big team. Big guys. That's yeah, and that's all. And I, un- I understand the rationale, but like, god damn, this this you know what a what a tag division they've had in years past, and look at it now. This is just a sorry state of affairs. Um, also on this show, we would be remiss not to mention the jailhouse match. No belts on the line, obviously, but uh, the boss man. Beats the Mountie and sends him for 24 hours to a New York City jail. Uh, and the Mountie really steals the show, Jacques Rougeau, with his he post-match does. performance. Uh, Meltzer was at SummerSlam 91, I took it, yep. from his review. Okay, um, so they said they didn't show this on the, uh, like, to the live audience, which sucks. But huh. it, was great for t- it, was, it was great for TV. They kept going back to it. Heenan and Piper were selling it great. Um, you know, they had built up to it a little bit with um, Mountie bad-mouthing the New York City police officers. Yeah. So, you know, them throwing them around and stuff. And, you know, the show going off the air with the guy putting his hand on his hand is, <laughs> again, something I guess you probably can't do 30 years later. But they did it. Um, and we all laughed in 1991. Is this the end of Peak Boss Man? Yeah, I'd say so. Or in retrospect, we may have actually already seen the end of Peak Boss Man. I'm not sure that the crowd was as into this match as I thought they were or, or remembered. 
Like I watched this back not too long ago, and they seem pretty cold to put, like the bulk of the match. It's not really until Mountie loses that they kind of wake up a little bit. Yeah, maybe did they just assume that we all know who's going to win here or something? Yeah, I don't know. Possibly. I just, yeah, it, what's interesting here is they did do a heavy heat angle for this match. Yeah, they did. As opposed one. to the other matches. Yeah, we, we talked about that in uh, part two with the Mountie doing the shock stick and yelling, I am the Mountie. The Canadian Mountie, of course, as yes. the boss man would always refer to him as. Uh, and in commentary leading up to the show, they were doing that stuff with the legal situation in Canada where Vince was very clear to say, oh, this man's not an actual Mountie. <laughs> He's masquerading. Yes, masquerading is a bounty. So, yes, there was a lot of that. And, um, yeah, I, I think this match is fun. It's, you know, baby faces going over is a theme of SummerSlam 91. It is. Jacques Rougeau giving the finger in 1991 to the cop who's trying to get his prints. Yes, that's great. <laughs> well, when I said the final vignette airs, when presumably he was given the finger, um, I had no illusion. Oh! I had no idea what the illusion actually was. <laughs> I was like... Well, this guy doesn't really seem like he's a tough guy. <laughs> I can't really understand why he's so sick. He kind of looked like Barry Darso. <laughs> well, you know, he probably should have been thrown in jail for that fucking finish with Virgil. Yeah, there you go. Maybe that's why he was there. <laughs> what are you in for? Shitty finish in a TV match. <laughs> oh, man. Also on the show, opening it up, actually, Dragon, Bulldog, and Tornado, uh, all former and uh, future IC champs. This is your note here. We a six-man tag in the opener. Yeah, it gets power and glory, how far the mighty have fallen. And the warlord. Criminal. Uh, yes. Uh, we should also mention here, and I know you picked up on this in your notes, and I did too, <laughs> that at the SummerSlam Spectacular, I think this is the last time we will reference it, uh, Dragon, Bulldog, and Tornado have a bit of a warm-up match together against the three-man Orient Express. Yeah. As is Tanaka, uh, Kato, or Kato, as your countryman Lord Al Hayes would say. And uh, Akio Sato was brought back out of mothballs. Uh, this match features extremely racist commentary from Vince McMahon and Bobby Heenan. <laughs> like, like, you're kind of just cringing, and it just keeps going. Like, normally, um, like, Heenan would make a joke, and, you know, Vince McMahon would do, oh, will you please stop it, Bobby Heenan? But instead... Joins in! <laughs> well, it's not that they just join in. It's, they apparently, like, have a game of one-upsmanship for 15 <laughs> minutes who can make the more Asian stereotype jokes. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, Vince gets the proceedings off to an ominous start by referring to Mr. Fuji as, quote, Chopstick Charlie. <laughs> That that was said. Chopstick Charlie. I mean, he called him the Chopstick Charlie of the World Wrestling Federation, oh, as so opposed nice. to all as opposed to all of the other Chopstick Charlies that are running <laughs> around in the world. Yeah, he's just the World Wrestling Federation's Chopstick Charlie. Oh, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop saying Chopstick Charlie right now because it's very <laughs> bad. As was IRS beating Greg Valentine in the cooldown match before the main event. Uh, someone cooldown. Cooldown cool being the operative word. God, IRS versus 1991 babyface Greg Valentine. I mean, a hideous idea on paper. Nobody, you talk about the crowd being dead. Yeah, cool. Yeah, cooldown to the point of being cadaver cold. Yes, yes. Um, I have one last bit here, so I, I'm sure you're with me. We've mentioned it a few times. I thought Monsoon. Heenan and Piper were just so fucking good on commentary. They were great on this show. show. 
this show is actually one of my comfort food shows, I think. Hmm. You know, if you're familiar, like I would put this show on a lot back in the day, in part because of the commentary. Yeah. Like I just love listening to the banter between the three. And I could not believe Meltzer when he reviewed the show, um, you know, from watching it on TV after he went to it, saying, oh, yeah, I just wanted to turn down the commentary. Oh, come on, man. Dave. Piper and Heenan are just nonstop for three hours, and it's brilliant. I mean, when Heenan tells Piper, I heard a rumor that your parents ran away from home. (laughs) That's just good stuff. And, you know, uh, what is it? Um, Piper goes, "Uh, Gorilla, I don't have to sit here and take this, do I? And Heenan goes, no, you can leave. Oh, Bobby Heenan. He's, you know, he's he's tremendous here. Yeah, I'll just do one cheap plug. If you want a real deep dive on the show proper, yes, more than Lee and I did uh, on the podcast I'm on, of course, every week, Top Rope Nation. We did a classic episode uh, covering the entirety of SummerSlam '91. Uh, you do have to become a patron. It's very simple. It's five dollars, my God, and you will get access to that show as well as all of our other classic reviews. So, if you want more SummerSlam '91, that's a place to get it. Yes, gets my recommendation. Absolutely, I'm a patron of the of the show as well. So, by all means, my highest recommendation. Uh, just before one last note before we drop uh, drop some slides, a couple of things. The opener that we mentioned there. Again, super hot, good crowd. We mentioned on the last show actually has more heat in the main event, shockingly enough. Yes. Um, always felt like this was a strange match. Again, no angle for the, for the opening six, man. And with guys that like felt like they should almost all have been doing more at various points in 91 except the Warlord. Yeah, it's kind of weird how they – and it feels like maybe that's why they just all threw him in a six-man. It's like, yeah. okay, um, Bulldog, we had him in an IC title feud. We don't like him that much, but we like him. Uh, Tornado's a former IC champ, you know, we're still trying to do stuff with him, and, and the Dragon, we just brought him back, mm. so it's like, well, let's just throw baby faces together. It's better than having them do, like, three squash matches like they used to do back in the day, like at WrestleMania when there's, like, a 14-match card. Oh, God, yeah, that's just every time. Yeah, yeah, this was way better, and the crowd was hot. Crowd's hot. Should also mention, actually, uh, on TV, leading up to the wedding, the, uh, the match made in heaven, there's a very funny 45-second vignette that airs of Randy Savage trying on outfits. <laughs> you see this? No, I missed that. Oh, it's great. I have to send it to you. It's just him, like, wearing the, you know, the different ridiculous, absurd costumes. And it's like, ooh. <laughs> it's just him alone. From oh, the wait, yes, I do. Yes, I did see that now. I did say that. Uh, I apologize, everybody. My uh, <laughs> three-year-old daughter is up, and if you hear any, if you hear Bigfoot in the background, that's her running above that's me right. here. Yes, so, yes, I apologize for that. But, yeah, I did see that, yes. That's good stuff. Now, SummerSlam, the preliminary estimates for this show are they did a 2.7 buy rate for 405,000 buys, a very, very close number to WrestleMania. You'll remember that we, uh, we mentioned that at a 2.8. So this is like a hair short of WrestleMania. Yeah, and I guess it's a pretty good number, all things considered, with the steroid stuff and the weak main event. Mm-hmm. I mean, God, you, you know, we speculated what a better main event could have looked like for the show. Would this show have beaten WrestleMania? I don't know. It's the uh, second year in a row that SummerSlam was close to Mania. It happened, you know, with in 1990, where yeah. WrestleMania was a disappointing number and SummerSlam was considered a positive number. So that's interesting. I guess maybe it's just like the hardcores are left and a casual audience that usually bumps Mania isn't around anymore. I don't know. I mean, you're going to get to a stat here that suggests otherwise, so I'm not sure if I'd say that. Yeah, that's a good point. So 405,000 buys. Let's talk about that number uh, specifically. There's only going to be two pay-per-views, WrestleMania's 9 and 10. 
that would exceed 400,000 buys until WrestleMania 14 in 1998. So yeah. the 400,000 mark is not a threshold that this company is going to uh, cross many times uh, over the next six-plus years. Um, and as far as the show and where it fits in, um, you know, my tastes, I think it might be a back-end top-10 SummerSlam, to be blunt with you. Mm. Um, it sounds like maybe I'm a little higher on it than you, but it's just like I said, it's a comfort food show for me. Lots of baby faces go over, and they were in a position to do that because, you know, you've got Ric Flair, Jake Roberts, The Undertaker, none of them on the show, obviously, waiting in the wings, so you could just afford to put all the baby faces over here, and it was a feel-good show. Um, I don't think it's as good as 89 as far as no, the first is a really good go. show. Um, but I, I don't know. Like, I was kind of thinking, and there's like six or seven that are definitely better than 91, no questions asked, but it gets a little murky when you get past that, to be honest with you. I, I think that it's just, when I think about the show, I think that the, 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 the actual, you know, what it's really based on, Match Made in Heaven, Match Made in Hell, both of which are like really just kind of like there and don't yeah. really do a whole lot of it. That I think brings it down a little more than maybe it deserves because the rest of the show, again, apart from Valentine and IRS, uh, kind of delivers on what you want and what's kind of being hinted to for a long time in some of these cases, like we said, like LOD and the nasties hasn't been like a long, long feud or anything like that, but Bossman and Mountie had been, mm-hmm. um, that, that'd be going on for a few months. Virgil DiBiase obviously was, was the big payoff there. Perfect. Losing the icy belt felt like it was a long time in the making, obviously. So yeah, I, I can, I can see the argument for it. And I think that the reason it probably gets bogged down is, is the top two issues. And I guess that kind of leads to just a, a final question here. What do you attribute that, Big number two, four oh five. What do you think? What, what do you think that it was the Sid factor? Do you think it was the wedding? Do you think that people thought maybe Flair would have been there since they dropped his it, name? What do you think? I don't know because it's funny. You know, Hogan Slaughter was a disappointment at WrestleMania, yeah. so there's no reason to think that that issue had anything to do with it. Uh, Colonel Mustafa, General Adnan, uh, added absolutely zero buys. You would think that they would maybe even subtract some uh, with their <laughs> presence. I mean. Is it just the dynamic of Hogan Warrior teaming and then this new unknown Sid coming in? I mean, I don't think the wedding added many buys. I just don't. I wouldn't have thought so. Um, Yeah, I I don't know. I I just think it might be that, hey, WWF had a certain audience that was just going to buy the show no matter what, I guess, at this point. It was just pretty close to the number of people. Like, if you bought WrestleMania, you bought this show. I think that might be what it was. And then the audience doesn't take its real dip until, you know, a couple months after this. I, I just think that maybe the steroid stuff just hadn't really, you know, while it was in the public consciousness, we had talked about how it really hadn't hit the wrestling fans yet. Like, yeah. wrestling fans were still kind of like, yeah, whatever, we still like this. But, you know, a, a decent portion of them obviously fall off uh, in the fall, despite the fact the company's better creatively. Yeah, it starts the weather, and obviously that's, that's going to be a main talking point for part four is, 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 you know, the creative upswing and the business downswing that kind of happens concurrently. No hot angles, so you, you can't attribute it like, oh, man, there was like this great angle. I mean, the hottest angle in the promotion was that Jake Undertaker thing. They're not featured on the card unless the people are thinking they might show up, and they right. do for something different. But these promos that they show every week, as I'm watching them, yeah, yeah they're formulaic, but, man, it – it gets me more excited about the pay-per-view matches than today's TV does. Like in, in WWE, simple. at least, you know, yeah. where they like actively make you not 
care about the pay-per-view match by the time you get there. I mean, you don't just hear Bret Hart talk about Mr. Perfect, get ready to be excellently executed, like, week after week. You're like, damn, man, I want to watch this match. Yeah, I see what you're saying. The simplicity of it is it, far more alluring than angle, you know, heavy, heavy angle to heavy angle that kind of becomes meaningless. There, it feels like there's a middle ground here somewhere, you know what I mean? Like, yes. this, this was so strong on the promos. And, hey, the buy rate... Was, was a success for, for what they were looking for, so I can't really complain about it that much. A, a kind of a shocking success when compared to, although again, mainly it was considered a, a rather large failure, so maybe I shouldn't say that, but, um, I, yeah, there's, there's a middle ground here, you know, that, that, that there's a huge lack of development in, in, in the top angles, but having said that, the simplicity of the promos and the strength of the characters as they come off doing the promos helps tremendously. It, it just it helps everything feel like a big deal, just, and this is the one thing that I, you know, modern wrestling misses is the ability to just kind of set the stage and tell you what kind of the zeitgeist of the moment is in the promotion where it's like okay this is the match that's coming up let's talk about it a little bit and they would do that on commentary and they would do that you know in the kind of the talk show environment they would do on uh prime time the oh it's prime time the uh the, the ability to actually kind of just you know hype the match as opposed to having to hype it with angles it's just like, hey, this is happening on this date and people talking about it and talking about the implications of it. Yeah, I mean, maybe it doesn't make for great television in the moment, but you get the payoff at the end. It's a different way. You can't do it in 2021 because of the importance of the television deals. You yeah, can't forsake TV for pay-per-view. So it, it's a different model back then, but it worked. And it's quite frankly, you know, for guys like us who podcast about it, and you know, you need to watch the TV to get ready. I mean, you don't have to, but I think we're professionals and we want to. Uh, it makes for an easier TV watch. So it was it fine. Um, I just looked up, obviously, um, this SummerSlam did not do as well as the previous year. Summerside, which was closer to 500,000. It certainly didn't touch 89, uh, which I think still is the second most bought Summerslam, or is it third? I can't remember if 05 beat it or not now offhand. I, I've done a, pay, a review of 05 over on Top Probation, and I talked about that. I can't remember. It was close, regardless. I think Summerslam 89 is like a top three bought Summerslam ever. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, uh, 98's number one. But um, so, but yet, regardless, 1989, I mean, yeah, it was the standard bearer for Summerslam. Uh, pay-per-view buys for nine years so my god yeah yeah dude people want to talk shit about zeus that thing drew man big <laughs> and, and to that point to that point with 89 being better than this show we agree that angle was way hotter than the match made in hell oh my god it's not even close and yeah so the fact that this did not hit that height is not surprising when you look at it yeah. from, from that kind of comparison uh, um and- it was on par with the first SummerSlam, 88. I'm looking right. It did, like, 88 did, like, 400,000 on the nose, I'm reading here. Mm. Um, obviously, the pay-per-view universe, though, was much smaller in 88 yeah, than it was in 91. Comes with the asterisk, although, again, mega bucks, mega powers with Jesse as ref. Probably should have been there. Probably would have felt hot. Probably would have done better with a, in a better universe. Yeah, probably would have. Although, you know, again, special guest referee, kind of a played-out tag that's mm. at the end of its rope. But there's some similarities there. But, yeah, the 88 one felt like a bigger deal at the time. Couple of little odds and ends to get to here as we wrap up talking about July and August of 1991 in the WWF. Uh, <laughs> this is just stuff that's been happening on television in the meantime. Couple of you know things coming and going here. The Skinner vignettes are airing around this time, and they are not setting my world on fire at all. No, skinning people seems a bit extreme. <laughs> Slightly. 
I mean, we're just going to take a knife to the baby faces. And I mean, that's just <laughs> very odd. It, it felt like basically a heel outback Jack. Obviously, I was familiar with Skinner. This is not my uh, first rodeo watching these vignettes. But and I couldn't help but think, you know, a heel outback Jack, but from the Everglades as opposed to Australia. Mm, yeah. <laughs> It was shitty. A gorilla monsoon during his debut referred to him as, quote, the weird river guy. Yeah. Earlier on, we had a chance to talk to this weird river guy. <laughs> Mustn't be a fan. Yeah. And gorilla. Yeah, he would always. You could tell if he didn't like him or not. Uh, God, we're going to get to a few more of them coming up. There are just so many bad characters that quickly failed that WWE introduced over the course of 1990 yeah, I, I, I know, you know, Skinner's first move in his first match, spit and dip in the face of the job. I've got to be a favorite of yours. You know how I feel about dip. It's disgusting. Yes, I do. <laughs> it is gross. Yeah, people can listen to another Top Rope Nation classic, cheap plug, uh, this Tuesday in Texas where I talked about uh, my total and complete lack of affinity for dip. Do people <laughs> dip over the UK? No, not much. Good for you. Yeah, Kern, Kern, I guess Steve Kern, you can say he gives it a go in the vignettes but it just it sucks a year ago you could have at least got like a jake for you to have this but this is like the first time in years there's been no animals in the promotion you know what i mean like, yeah. talk about bad timing yeah damn it pal <laughs> <laughs> surprised they didn't bring back skinner like as a baby face in 2002 and had to get the f out actually that would have been a nice uh anti, anti-wildlife you know that seems yeah, oh, oh yeah oh that yes there you go god yes I always thought they should have steve austin stun a panda bear i know that the PETA <laughs> people would have been all over for that but <laughs> Dino Bravo appears doing a babyface squash match with Luis Piccoli. Uh, he's, he's got brown hair as opposed to his traditional, well, not traditional, but his, his more commonly known WWF blonde. No charisma whatsoever. Useless tub of shit. <laughs> Frankly. Oh, how dare you speak ill of the dead. Uh, an untelevised angle took place. I don't know if it was at this same taping. My guess is it was to get the crowd thinking he was a babyface. Bravo. But, uh, Bravo shows up when he punches the Mountie mm. on televised. Uh, just, I guess, because there, there was a lot of canned cheers during this babyface squash between Brian. How about Luis Piccoli being the guy to job to him, too? I That's know, I know. Hoot and a half. Uh, what is it with career heels turning babyface at the end? <laughs> Patera, Morocco, Stud, Valentine. Never works. I don't know why Vince kept doing that. And this did not last long at all. I mean, I don't think there was a second Dino Bravo babyface squash. Uh, no, I mean, you know, I'm not sure Dino's heel room was working out so great either, actually, around this time. But there you go. They, they gave they gave it the uh, the college try to try and get that little last bit of mileage out of Dino, and uh, and not so surprisingly, it doesn't work out. Um, Ned Brady, who works for Eddie Mansfield in Florida, can no longer use the name Repo Man. Apparently, one of Brady's friends called J.J. Dillon with a Repo Man idea. And while the WF didn't use the idea, they trademarked the name and the idea, and they aren't allowing Brady to use it, which is actually real bullshit. Okay. I mean, you talk about some controversial business moves. Are you ribbing me? So some guy <laughs> randomly calls J.J. Dillon. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, the Repo Man, yeah. All right, yeah, we're not going to use that. Or think, All right, but we'll trademark it. And it's a you can't. Yeah, sadly, WWF, of course, does use the Repo Man idea with Barry Darso. Uh, so things would get worse for him than that uh, aforementioned finish you brought up against Virgin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. nasty Ned Brady. You know, you can always rely on him to be, like, already standing in the ring when he came back from commercial on Worldwide. Yeah, what? A, that is unbelievable. <laughs> they just <laughs> ripped the idea from this poor bastard. 
Now, also another another hot debut off the press. Superstars of Wrestling in a primetime uh, taping take place at the end of July, and debuting at that taping was Big Bully Busick, uh, who apparently, and this is not my words, Dave Meltzer's got over pretty well as a heel. I have to I have to respectfully disagree with Mr. With my good friend Mr. Meltzer on that one. And manager Herbie Wilmington is here in the Observer. Uh, I'm guessing that was a, a live report that didn't exactly uh, get the name right. In reality, uh, downtown Bruno was given the shot because he's friends with Sid Justice uh, and has been since the start. And I guess Sid used his influence to get Bruno in. Look, I know some people swear by downtown Bruno, like Memphis fans, but I, Herbie Wilmington... Or Henry Herman, as he was introduced, I believe, at a house show once uh, <laughs> before he officially made his debut, sucked. Just terrible. Yeah. I don't care who he was friends with. Just awful. And Big Bully Busick sucked, too. I told this story on Top Rope Nation Classic, but got in a little bit of a trouble uh, over my friend's house. I'm 11 years old. I, I don't oh, know yeah. if it was this debut or if it was a subsequent Big Bully Big bully Busick, pardon me, squash. We're sitting there watching it with my friend, and I can't remember what curse word I use, but I was like either this guy is shitty or this guy fucking sucks. I said it. My buddy's mom heard me and sent me home, called my parents. Dark times for Kyle in 1991. Got in trouble with my parents because of Big Bully Busick. There's a Newsbreakers column on him, by the way, too. I don't know if we have the time. Um, Oh, please. Okay. The bully's scrawny manager, so scrawny he makes Jimmy Mouth of the South Heart look like a bodybuilder, Oof. has this to say about the tough from Weirton, West Virginia. What a odd uh, city to be building. Weirton, West Virginia. I don't think any other wrestler would beard from there. Uh, the bully's going to beat up everybody in the WWF. This is your boy Harvey Whippleman talking. Mm. We don't care if it's Hulk Hogan, the Ultimate Warrior, or Sid Justice. The bully's the toughest man ever to enter WWF. Ain't any championship safe and any legend we can't control. That Wrong. didn't happen. Wrong. No title. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. the no bully... Not even a sniff of a match with any of those stars. Uh, does not even make it to the next pay-per-view, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Actually, maybe it does get powerbombed by Sid now that I say that. Maybe he did get powerbombed by Sid. Didn't prove that one to be right. I remember seeing a WF magazine from around this time on The Bully, because I got it in a car boot sale as a kid, and I'd never heard of this guy at the time. Like, this again, this is probably about, like, 93. Reading this column in WF magazine, because there was, like, another one that actually had, like, a feature on him. Yeah, I have that. There was two. I just pulled the one. Yes. This was the Bully Bulls Inn. This was in the... October 91 with Savage and Liz on the cover. Yeah. Pretty dull. <laughs> Pretty yeah. dull character. He did use Doink's finisher. Heel Doink's finisher. The stunt yes. puller, although he did it with both legs. Yeah. That probably killed. <laughs> yeah, it kind of was a painful fit. Not a bad finish, but yeah, bad character, and he's gone by Survivor Series. Yeah, look at this parade of just Skinner, Bravo, Repo Man, the bully. Never should have had the time of day. Um, oh. Yeah. Meltzer adds here, morale is really low because with one show per night and bookings being rotated, most of the guys will only get half as much work as usual. And since nobody has a guaranteed contract except the bodybuilders, <laughs> that means everyone will earn about half as much as usual during the seven week period where they're going to be doing one show a night. OK, so did they end up doing that? They do. OK, because I, I looked, I was scanning, I, I did it like right before I sleep and I was like, wait a minute, there's still two shows some night. But then I saw some nights there was one. Was that like later in the fall that they yeah. went to one? OK, because at, at first they do not. So, OK, interesting. And obviously, um, uh, for all the reasons discussed here, part three, Undertaker, 
Ultimate Warrior is not the headliner. It is, of course, Hogan or Piper uh, versus Ric Flair. Yeah, depending on if Hogan uh, decides he's going to show up for the big markets. But uh, Piper, you can do the legwork with Flair. Yes. That shows. But yeah, so that wraps us up for July and August of 1991 in the WWF. Obviously, a lot of WCW talk as well on the show. But all tying in to what is coming for the rest of the year, we have four months left to get to uh, to cover this period. And Kyle, this was probably of everything we've discussed so far, this two-month period, easily the most newsworthy, easily the most in-depth and interesting with obviously the Warrior leaving, Flair coming in, the steroid stuff, SummerSlam, what's going on here, where are we going you know, moving forward, Jake, you know, Jake, Savage, all this stuff that's happening, leading to... The final quarter of this year and as we've already kind of prefaced creatively after what has been a pretty oh, say stale but yeah pretty stagnant summer it's pretty horrible let's yeah, not sugarcoat it yeah, i mean nobody stagnant. really wants to watch back 90 and 90 the first half of 91 no no and, and for good reason a stagnant summer things start to pick up a little bit now and i yes, can't they wait do. <laughs> but i'll tell you what, i'll tell you what doesn't pick up though is the houses no, like don't. that's the that's like the big interesting thing is like creatively speaking, fall of ninety one is way better than anything you and I have talked about. But business falls off, and we'll be here to explore all the reasons why that happened and talk about all this stuff. Because man, is there a lot to talk about in that last four months? It only took us what like five <laughs> hours to talk about the last two months. So God help us, how long it's gonna take us about the last four? Oh man, lots to discuss, a lot of big stuff that's going to be going on for the rest of the year, and again, there's more fallout negatively uh, from the steroid situation as we approach 1992, and as we round the corner to that year, it ain't going to get any prettier. <laughs> so prepare yourselves, folks, because we're on for a fun little ride here. So with that said, I do want to thank, while I have this chance, Kyle Ross for joining me for what has been a five-hour odyssey, but an immensely enjoyable time talking Love July and August. Yeah, this has been a blast, man. 1991, what a fuck, you know, there's so much about kind of, you know, early fandom that harkens back to this kind of period of time. And there's always the element of roasting the glasses, looking at things positively anyway. But what has been so much fun about, for me at least, looking at this stuff back, like you say, the simplicity of what they do, even with something like you know, the slaughter angle, which I don't like and, and is dull and boring. This feels, for everything that we've kind of talked about building up to this point, this is such a weird period of time. The promotion looking like it's, goddamn, heel Jake, Ric Flair coming in, Sid is going to be, you know, a, a top guy around Hogan after people have been kind of talking about him as a potential main eventer for, for years. Savage coming back, Taker's hot. Like, this feels like, really, if it wasn't for the stuff outside of the business, obviously Warrior going, it feels like we should be, like, heading for, like, another mini peak here yes like yeah like it knows i said okay let's get back up to those 89 numbers but it does not happen and it's 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 interesting i mean obviously it doesn't affect my enjoyment i mean that that's just i mean it's a thing that we've been saying man yeah enjoyment of the product versus the reality of the business it's a fun thing to explore uh, i love the angles that are about to take place in the fall can't wait to talk about them with you i mean Randy and Jake, my God, that's like my favorite thing in years that the WWE have been done. Um, Shawn Michaels turns heel at the end of the year. Um, I know it doesn't air until early 92, but we'll get to talk about that. That's a name we haven't, again, other than the random match of Perfect, we haven't mentioned him much at all in 1991 or the Rockers in general. Um, yeah, just a ton to talk about. Great um, angle with, with, with Vince taking his first bump on television. Yes! 
Yes. Oh, my goodness. And, um, yeah, and this Tuesday it's two pay-per-views there will be. Uh, SummerSlam and this Tuesday in Texas. So, wow. Just uh, it, 91 just never lets up, man. And um, it's going to be great. It's loaded. It's where it's at. So join us for part four of the 1991 series. Kyle Ross, thank you so much for the great man from Ohio. I am Lee Morgan. We are out here. Talk to you again soon.